This week on Excelsior Journeys, it is season four, and we have an amazing premiere for you. A gentleman who has written more than 700 hours of primetime television, who has not only written for my childhood as both G.I. Joe and Transformers, including the iconic Transformers the movie, but also he has written your parents' childhood as well. It is going to be such a thrill for you to hear my chat with Mr. Ron Friedman. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire. And you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for And that's you, what the I moment? taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills Line of Ariel. On. I've got better things to do tonight than so die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater with and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm sex. rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, throw yeah. some spaghetti yeah. against the wall. See this if it is sticks. George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. Over 100 episodes, still going strong. Thank you so much for being a part of season four. Still can't believe how far this show has gone. And it has been such a privilege to be able to talk to so many wonderfully creative people. One of the things that is kind of been a staple in Excelsior Journeys is when I've spoken to different established people in their field, then they had done something or written something, said something, whatever, that had inspired me to continue on my own creative journey. Now, what's great about my guest this week, Ron Friedman, is that in addition to writing so much of my childhood, he's also written a lot of my parents' childhood. And he's still going strong today. I am so excited to be able to have this opportunity to speak with someone who has basically been responsible for so much of what I grew up with, so much of what my parents grew up with, and it's a real thrill to have him here. So it is my privilege to introduce to you writer, producer, Ron Friedman. Ron, how are you, sir? I'm okay, and that's a big statement considering the state of COVID and my age and everything else. And I'm glad to I'm glad to see that you've been staying safe. I take it. Oh yes. Oh good. Absolutely. Excellent. As safe as you can possibly be, considering that comets are heading for Earth. Yep. We got the pandemic, mm-hmm. and some morons will not get vaccinated for yeah. whatever stupid reason. Yeah, I live in Missouri. Good luck. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So hopefully by the time that this airs, because we're recording this at the end of July, this part of the interview will be going live in September. So hopefully by then we can get some of these numbers down. But in the meantime, you have been taking meetings still with, with a lot of various things. What have you got currently in the pipeline? Well, I have a new play called Love Her More. Yeah. Which is based on a factual book called The Secrets They Kept by Suzanne Handler. I have a Broadway producer and an actor studio director. We were looking for a theater when COVID hit. Wow. Now we're looking for a star and we're hoping to get Billy Crystal. Whoa. Okay. Yes. Billy doesn't know that, but but (laughs) the director's reaching out to him and I hope he's open-minded because it's not a comedy. Yeah. He's he's a wonderful actor. And by the way, I just noticed that there's a circular light above my head. Oh, that's not an angel with a flashlight. It's a lamp that doesn't work. And if you'll give me a moment, I'm going to remove that. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, a little bit, 
we're, we're consider it, this the choreographed part of the interview. <laughs> well, it is audio only, so it is okay. You know, like, oh, um, it is okay. Then yeah. The hell with it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just Good enough. We'll, we'll keep that as the light bulb that goes on over your head when new ideas are coming up. And based on your credentials, that light bulb's gone up a lot. So I am I'm thrilled to see that. I'm thrilled to be able to continue to do it. I'm, I'm slowed down by the sort of uh, non-specific nonsense about mm-hmm. crossing an, a, an imaginary arbitrary line in the sands of time, yeah. which caused the television industry bit by bit to tell me I was too old, which is when I got into animation. Mm. And wow. this old fart created G.I. Joe and the Transformers. Yes, he did. And yes, with my did. dear friend and frequent writing partner, Stanley, co-created the Marvel Action Hour, which I produced, and uh, also a bunch of other stuff that I've done since, including the one play I mentioned. I have a musical that's supposed to open in Pasadena. A musical? In uh, the spring of 22. We'll wow. see about that. I hope it does. Yeah. You always have to hope. Absolutely. I also, at the end of 2020, mm-hmm. I got really ill. Mm-hmm. I mean, really ill. Really? I was getting fan mail from Forest Lawn. And I get calls. <laughs> if you die now, we'll throw in anything you want at graveside, including <laughs> oh, your wife. It was ridiculous. Yeah. But I thought, I'm going out. At least the last thing I can do is see if I still have it. Mm-hmm. So I sent a script of mine into several film festivals, mm-hmm. and I won both of them. Wow. One was the New York Big Apple Film Festival, which is prestigious. Mm-hmm. The other is a newer but still prestigious mm-hmm. one called the Los Angeles Neo-Noir Film Festival. Wow. I won them both with the same script called Uncle. Iron City Stripper. Nice. And I was too sick to take the online meetings. Mm-hmm. And personal appearances that went with the prizes. Yeah. So now I'm looking for an agent who is vertical because my mm-hmm. best agents are mostly dead, some by popular demand. But <laughs> I continue and I'm uh, soon going to have my new textbook, how to write for pictures that move and talk, sing and dance, have sex and vaporize galaxies. Nice. Which will really help anybody that hopes to be a writer, a screenwriter. That's fabulous. Because if one picture is worth a thousand words, Mm -hmm. what are a thousand pictures worth? And Mm -hmm. every movie, every television show, any streaming, anything, is thousands of pictures. Yeah. Linked together by the persistence of vision. And by the way, I'll tell you this because it's always touched me and given me food for thought. There was a temple of Isis in ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. I forget what dynasty, but at least 4,000 years ago. Yeah. And the temple of Isis was at the end of a long colonnade, which her supplicants, who were all nobles, or mm-hmm. people that served the court, could ride along in their chariot to get to the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Each column was a picture of Isis. And each successive column had her turn and point to the sanctuary because the speed of the chariot animated those still pictures. Wow. How did they know? 
because I know there was no YouTube to check. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure there was no 800, tell me how to make columns animate. Right. So this, how did they know that? Wow. How did they do that? Is pretty much what you have to do if you're in the arts. I can see, I can see it in my head. I can see it in my head, almost like a Ray Harryhausen style kind of, kind of motion to it. Well, if you're creative and I think you must be, to dare to be in any contact with the arts, mm-hmm. and you understand yeah. that there is a mystery about this, these means of communication mm-hmm. that sometimes are not literal, yeah. and yet they produce deep impact, and they change lives. Mm-hmm. I know that you and many of my students, like I and my brother were in the 30s, are products of what we read and what we watched. Yeah. Then comic books, radio, listening was important. Mm -hmm. It's become important again with podcasts. Yes. It's vital because it's the theater of the mind. Absolutely. And of course, motion pictures. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't wouldn't be who I am if I hadn't seen Gunga Din. Gunga Din is what started it, huh? Yes. And of course, you recognize that as colonialism at its height. The mm-hmm. British Raj, of course, turning some beastie into a hero because he dies for the queen, mm-hmm. which the queen would never do for him. Yeah. But nonetheless, I later met Sam Jaffe, who played Ganga Dean. Oh, wow. And I knew Cary Grant, mm-hmm. who was a friend. Yeah. So I, as a kid, seeing Cary Grant and Ganga Dean, mm-hmm. played by Sam Jaffe, and then knowing them. And the same for Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra. These names mean nothing to most of my students now. Most of them do know George Carlin. Oh, yeah. And a number of them who really aren't afraid to watch movies that are in black and white. Mm-hmm. They will know a bunch of other people that I know. Yeah. But most of them don't know radio. Mm-hmm. And radio is very important for film students. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because we grow up as prisoners of prose. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is this. If we're lucky, somebody mm-hmm. reads to us when we're little. Yeah. An aunt, an uncle, a big brother, a big somebody reads to us. Mm-hmm. I'm doing that with my daughter right now. Yeah. yeah. And when we listen, we paint in what's missing. Yeah. For example, an evil king with a beautiful daughter who's about marriageable age, but mm-hmm. a horrible person sends out an announcement to all kingdoms and galaxies beyond time for those who would woo the princess to call at the palace and seek her hand. Mm. You see. And the answer is, you see nothing. I haven't described anything but say, it's a beautiful princess. Yeah. But that doesn't phase us because we are making those pictures as we hear it. Yeah. But if we're screenwriters, we can't mm-hmm. trust the audience to make those pictures. We must provide them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do the same thing as, uh, as an audiobook narrator, too. I have over a dozen titles to, to my name. And it's so much fun to be able to turn prose, like you said, like we are prisoners of it, but turn the prose into a performance, into a one-man performance. I agree. And that's so, essential. Yeah. And it's and so that's much what fun. Te- that's what teaching online is about as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Oddly, oddly enough, my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon and Stanford, mm -hmm. did a study to see what the effect of learning online was. And they determined mm -hmm. that the visual trumped all of the news, the information, the factual stuff. That is what dominated with yeah. the result that the students became dumber. Mm. They didn't process the verbal material, which was essential. Wow. They were just stunned by the vision. Wow. How about that? That's definitely understandable, especially over Isn't the past it? few decades and everything. Yep. Yeah. How like how there's been such less less dependence on audio, on dialogue, and yep. so much more on the visuals, on right. the scale of everything. So yeah, it's when you when you have something, a really good meaty kind of script that you can really sink your teeth into. That's getting rarer and rarer these days. It is. Yeah. And the, the odd thing is, and I know you will understand this immediately and appreciate it, because mm -hmm. it's sort of in the same arena as what you've been talking about. Yeah. It is this. The greatest problem and the most significant and important thing that must be accomplished is for a screenwriter to put into prose in a form that is the standard of the industry, which is the, the film standard format, mm -hmm. you put it in there so that the ultimate audience will be able to see it yeah. and understand it. And so that the people, maybe two, 300, that are actually going to make it, understand exactly what they're responsible for. Mm -hmm. Convert the prose into pictures in action. Yeah. Because they are called moving pictures for a reason. Exactly. We want them to move. Yep. Anyway, here endeth the reason, the, the teaching, <laughs> that'll be $50, and I'll <laughs> give you the pledge. <laughs> so let's start back from the very beginning. The, the fact that you said Gunga Den was yep. your real inspiration, that immediately made me think of someone else I hold in very high regard, William Goldman, who said the exact who's, same thing. Who's that? William Goldman. Oh, um, yes. Excellent. Yeah. He's, in his book, I think it's called Something in the Screen Trade. He says, it, nobody knows anything. Adventures My in the Screen God, Trade. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nobody does know anything. Yeah. And, and the thing is, everybody resents that. Yeah. Because everybody you work with wants to be creative. Mm -hmm. And few people are. Right. The ones who are, are fearless. Somebody says, I don't like it. It's, okay, uh, what about this? Yeah. And apropos of that, Frank Marshall, great producer, mm -hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark, yep. something. he did a seminar for the film school at Chapman. And in it, he was asked the following by one of the students at the question time. Mm -hmm. the, the business is full of crazy, strange people. Yeah. Difficult people. Mm -hmm. What do you do about that? He said, I never say no. Mm. I always say, yeah. What about this? Mm. And he said, if they're creative, they say, yeah. What about that? Yeah. He said, if they're not, he can't work with them. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Because you want to have that. You want to have someone who's going to immediately be able to pivot to something yes, else. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. you never know what's going to happen. Right. And 
Yeah. And, and what, what William Goldman said in that book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, the big thing that, that really grabbed his attention with that was what he calls stupid courage. And yep. it's, and it's, it's Gunga Din being told, I think the line was, uh, the colonel has to know. And he gets on, up on the hill, blows the horn. <laughs> yep. Yes. <laughs> and, Miles Davis did the soundtrack. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah, he was he was saying how like when he watched that, he was he would just ball. He would just ball yep. his eyes out. And he was so attracted to that. And that wound up becoming like an inspiration for him to do, later do Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, yep. which is I would it's the epitome of stupid courage right there. Everything that they absolutely. did. Yeah. Hell, so, the fall will probably kill us. Right. <laughs> I can't swim. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I really always enjoyed him and love him. And if you've read his scripts, mm-hmm. they read like a, a letter from a friend. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's like he just sometimes asked for something. Mm-hmm. An example of that, I'm trying to remember the script, but what it was, the big final fight sequence and the script note said, this is going to be the biggest fight you've ever seen on film. That was it. I think, I think that was the princess bride. I think it was the it sword was. fight. Yeah, absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. It was a sword. Cause that, yeah, that's the way that he, he just labeled it as greatest it. sword fight you've ever seen. That's and man, was yes. he right or not? Like that was a fantastic sword fight between the two of them. Wasn't it? Inigo oh, Montoya. It. Yep. Inigo Montoya and Wesley. Uh, yes. A great picture. Oh yeah. Always watch it. And just another just another reason why he is missed. That's yeah. But let's get back let's get back over to you. So you were inspired by Gunga Din. You wanted to get into did that inspire you to get into writing in general or was it writing producing? Well, what was it that- I always wanted to write. Yeah. In elementary school, I won prizes for writing. Mm-hmm. And I did in high school and I did in college, even though I was a major of architecture with a minor in civil engineering in scene design, in costume design, and in acting, huh. in sculpture. I was able, with the Carnegie plan, so-called at the time, yeah. then Carnegie Tech, we were all compelled to take courses not in our discipline. So I loved that. Made sense. Because you, you need it. to have something to write about. Yeah. Exactly. And also it expands your horizons. Yeah. So... I always loved acting and singing and dancing and painting and and sculpture. Uh, My mother was a concert pianist and an opera singer. So my brother and I grew up and we would do requests, fantasy impromptu. How about Un Bel D? We thought everybody's mother did that. They didn't. (laughs) And my father died unexpectedly. I'm sorry. And I was 11 and my brother was nine. What does an opera singer and a concert pianist do as a woman? Mm-hmm. in 1945. So she became a piano teacher and a voice teacher. Ah. And she always would say this, because when she was 16, she was offered a scholarship to the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Mm. She was in Pittsburgh, one yeah. of eight kids. Her father, my grandfather, said, you can't go to New York. Somebody will put a needle in your arm, and you'll end up as a white slave in Singapore. Wow. She bought it. She Mm. was frightened. Mm. And at 18, she was offered a seven-year contract by Adolf Zukor at Paramount, Mm. which he created. Yeah. Same story. 
Her father says, absolutely not. You will not do that. And then here was the capper. Again, at 18, she was cast as the queen of the gypsies in an internationally famous opera called The Miracle that was put together by the impresario Max Reinhardt. If you look him up, he was one of the 19th and early 20th centuries revered impresarios. Every show he did was colossal. Yeah. Anyway, she's queen of the gypsies in the Philadelphia production in 1926. Yeah. They're moving to New York. She's supposed to go with the show. And again, her father, no, too dangerous. So ever after that, for the rest of her life, she Mm. would say, if only I had, I should have. Why didn't I? So my brother and I said, we're never going to do that. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it. Yes. If it doesn't work, that's okay. We have something to fall back on. But you would have done it. But you would have done done it. it. Yeah. So architecture wasn't my original choice. I had Mm -hmm. scholarships. I could have had a scholarship in metallurgy at Carnegie Tech. I could have had a scholarship in English or in painting and design. I mean, I had many of them. Yeah. We were poor. I couldn't afford to take a scholarship to Princeton or Yale or Harvard because mm-hmm. I couldn't afford to travel there or eat or, or buy winter clothes. And anyway, so finally, when I was a successful architect uh-huh. practicing for almost 11 years in Pittsburgh, and I was the, uh, the supervisor of all field construction and the principal chief designer mm-hmm. for a medium-sized Pittsburgh firm. 15 to 100, depending on the the, the job. And I had my own practice. Mm -hmm. I couldn't clear enough money, I felt, to get my children educated. Mm. So what did I say to myself? I'm going to get into show business. Mm -hmm. I'm going to write. Because a friend of mine had a cousin who was a comic, and he had to pay for somebody to write his act. And Um. he paid $10,000 for a 20-minute act. And I thought... 20 minute act. Yeah. I can get 10 grand if I can do two a week. Mm -hmm. Insane. Yeah. But I did it. And I literally had a tough time the first six, seven months. Mm -hmm. I finished out the year making 10 times more than I ever made in my best year as an architect. Go figure. Yeah. Who knew? Like you actually go ahead and pursue your passion. Exactly. And, and, Greatness can can be produced from it. That is well, that is yeah. anybody that's interested in the arts and they talk to me, I always say, go for it. Mm-hmm. Do it now. Yeah. Before you have five kids. I had two. Yeah. I was worried about them not eating. I mean, it was really a difficult decision, but something inside said, You gotta do it now. Yeah. This is it. Sort of like necessity is the mother of invention. Like you have it to can be. You yep. have that. You have that sort of. You have those responsibilities, but at the same time, like you want to. You have a passion within you that you need to pursue. So it's That's, like put it all out there. Just if yeah. you're not all in, it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like I remember Paul Schrader was saying how the only reason why people get into the arts is because they have no choice. It's because and why? Because they have no choice. I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. It's like if, the, if it's, if it's in... as I, I don't have a choice. I look right. at it as I have an opportunity. Yeah. And I'm qualified to reach for. Mm-hmm. Why 
Why don't I? Yeah. How can I not? Mm-hmm. I've got to try. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Anyway, we can now conquer a, a middle European country with this yeah. attitude. <laughs> wow. I love it. So, so you got that, that drive. You, you've been able to get that sort of, get the, all that, that sort of writing credentials like under your belt. What was it about television that really kind of you know, grabbed your attention? Well, television was new when I was thinking about being a writer. And of course, I watched all the television shows at the time. Mm-hmm. Many were garbage, but a lot of them were just to see television in your yeah. home, watch the moving pictures. Mm-hmm. Because when I was a kid and I'm with my mother and father and brother in the theater, there was a short. And this was in 1938. Mm-hmm. And the short was Miracles of Invention. Mm-hmm. And it showed a penthouse in New York. And in it, a lot of couples in white tie and tails and ball gowns with a butler. And the boy said, television will soon be making its place in every American home, in every state, in every city. And on the television screen, a voice comes out. This is a police police alert. Sorry to interrupt your program, which was a dance show. Yeah. But an escaped murderer is in your vicinity. Please be on the lookout for him. And then the picture of the butler who's serving the drinks comes on. (laughs) And I thought, wow. (laughs) How about that? Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that at the New York World's Fair of 1939, Mm -hmm. television was there. A very small screen, but television was there and it worked. Yeah. The war, Second World War, interrupted all of that. Hmm. All of it. Same with air conditioning. Because the New York World's Fair of 1939 had a pavilion where air conditioning was there. Oh, wow. They had it. But again, World War II. Yeah. Stopped everything. Which reminds me, I have a book called Fair Game 39, Mm -hmm. which I'm just finishing, which is set in the World's Fair of 1939. Oh, excellent. And the log line is that a WPA artist working on a mural is thought to have heard the German plans for the invasion of Poland. And so he's pursued by the Nazis in New York. And there were a hell of a lot of them. Yeah. And also the communists, because Hitler signed a pact with Stalin that enabled Hitler to invade Poland. And it's said in that world's fear. Wow. Great fun. Anyway, I'll let you when it comes out and I'll send you a copy. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. So with so you've you've gotten into television and everything. What were the shows that really kind of grabbed your attention that you wanted to be the a part of? The early shows that grabbed me were almost anyone with a coherent story. Yeah. And in those days there were no television series that did not have coherent stories mm-hmm. because the writers came to it from radio. And from theater. Yeah. They were used to delivering the words that mattered. Mm-hmm. And they could easily put the pictures to them. Yeah. Easily. Because they were trained. They were trained in communication mm-hmm. through the arts, through the just visual, like, through the verbal, and so on. Just like so, how uh, just like how the actors from from movies started yes. out in theater. And it you can see that. You can hear it. 
in their performance. So yeah, when you, when you said hear it, you've uncovered something that is absolutely factual that almost nobody knows. Every Hollywood star of the golden age of movies, thirties mm -hmm. into the forties, yeah. had a distinctive speech pattern. Yes. Example: mm -hmm. Maxwell Smart, who was Agent Maxwell Smart in mm -hmm. Get Smart. Yeah. I wrote for him often, and I wrote Get Smart. And I once said to him, where did you get Maxwell Smart? He said, well, I used to do impressions. And one of my impressions was William Powell. <laughs> William Powell was a distinguished stage actor before he became a movie star. And so I just cranked it up a little bit, and it was Maxwell Smart. Now, impressionists have a difficult time making a living now. Yeah. What does Brad Pitt sound like? How would you say, oh, that's Brad Pitt? How would, oh, that's Meryl Streep. Oh, wait yeah. a minute, wait a minute, that's Angelina Joke. There's no way mm -hmm. they didn't develop those vocal personae because they didn't begin in live theater. Right. Just about every performer began in live theater mm -hmm. or in vaudeville. Yep. Where the first thing they had to do was make sure you heard every word and also that it was the way they said it. Yeah. So Edward G. Robinson, yeah, I'll say, you see, you see, you see, mother of mercy, is this the end of Rico? And also Bogart, came because you're Blanca Philip Waters. Mm -hmm. Blanca has no waters, monsieur. I was, I was misinformed. <laughs> yes, every one of them, Cary yeah. Grant included. John mm -hmm. Wayne, I worked with John Wayne several times. Finally, I asked him, where did you get your voice? He said, funny, you should ask. All these old timers kept telling me, don't just talk. You sound like shit. You gotta make it. You gotta make it original, Pilgrim. Yes. So we learned to do that. And the John Wayne joke is, he's doing Hamlet. And he goes, to be or not to be? That is the question. And the audience, he walks on stage. He says, hey, I didn't write this shit. <laughs> anyway, you really hit on something that I delight in telling my students. Because a lot of film actors now, television actors, they do not speak distinctly. Yeah. They, yeah. they slough off the words. Sometimes, what, what the fuck did they say? Yeah, because they're they're, they don't have to depend on reaching the back row. Exactly. All they have to all they have to worry about is is the mic in position to hear them. Then they can That's whisper, it. and and, and that, that won't be a problem. Somebody will follow them with the mic. Yeah, if they, if they can't get it right. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I, I, when when you were talking about John Wayne, that that uh, reminded me of of something I remember hearing a while back. I'm not sure if this is correct, but if it if it's if this is actual if this is factual. It's hilarious. But John, John Wayne had his cameo in The Greatest Story Ever Told as the Roman soldier who said, truly, this, this man was a son of God. Yes. And the director, I think it was, was it George Stevens? I think, who, I think it was, yes. Yeah. He, to, he told them to give that line a little bit more awe. So they ran again, another take, and he goes, awe. Truly, this man was the son of God. <laughs> that sounds right. That sounds right. But he might have been kidding because he was really smart. Yeah. 
Yeah. He did that very well. He was really highly intelligent. Yeah. Oh, and absolutely. A, a definite right wing thug oh, for yeah, a long yeah. time. Yeah. And finally, he saw the error of his ways to a certain extent. But he was part of that Hollywood group that was very eager to name names during the Red Scare. Yeah. McCarthyism. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it well for a number of reasons. And one of which was that Zero Mostel, do you know who Zero Mostel oh, yeah. is? Oh, yeah. Again, you're unusual that you know Zero, <laughs> who is, became a great friend of mine. Really? really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And he was blacklisted. And he introduced me to some of his great active friends who were also blacklisted. Mm. And one of them was named Phil Leeds. If you'd see him, you'd say, I know, I've seen that guy. Yeah. He's in a lot of pictures. So Phil Leeds is called into the House Un-American Activities Committee because somebody has said he was in red channels. So he's there. And the chairman, McCarran, who later went to jail, as most of them on the committee did, because they were all crooks. He said to him, well, Mr. Leeds, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, what is it? He says, well, I don't know about that, but I'm a swan. (laughs) <laughs> he says 90 days you're doing 90 days he says i'm not a red swan i'm just your average swan and i thought that was great yeah. and while we're on the subject let me tell you this story sure because if you have any notion that the house on american Activ- activities committee saved america from communism forget it right my cousin lenny hirschfield mm-hmm. was one of the first graduates in USC's film school. Yeah. He graduated as a cinematographer and two-time, maybe three-time Academy Award-winning James Hong, James Wong or James, James Wong, was his mentor. Mm. So he was really good. Yeah. But in those years, you could not become a cinematographer or work in any profession in Hollywood unless you were connected mm. because everything was a secret. Yeah. Editors worked in private, in darkened rooms, so mm-hmm. nobody knew what they did. And you only learned to be a, an editor if somebody took you in, right? because you were in the family. The only way, the only way you learned to be a DP, a director of photography, mm-hmm. is if somebody would let you hang around and show you. Again, you had to be anointed, so couldn't get work in Hollywood, mm-hmm. went back to Pittsburgh, and he got a good paying job with the Bureau of Mines because there are coal mines all over Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. The mine lobby was so strong that they wouldn't close a mine unless photographic evidence was provided, mm-hmm. motion picture evidence. Yeah. And I said to him, what does that mean? You have to film the, the, you have to film the canary dying? He <laughs> says, yeah. Otherwise, wow. they won't close the mine. Wow. So mines were exploding all the time. Yeah. Anyway, somebody said he was a communist. They fired him. His parents called the congressman, his name was Flood. Mm-hmm. They said, Leonard's been called to the committee. They say, and he says, don't relax, relax. I was at his bris. I was at his bar mitzvah. I've known you for 50 years. You're good Americans. I'll be there when he's at the committee and I'll speak for him and they'll send him home. Comes time, he's there in Washington mm-hmm. at the committee. So McCarran calls him up, Mr. Hirschfield, please take the stand. And wait a minute, the chair recognizes the honorable uh, flood of Pennsylvania. And flood yeah. gets up and says, 
This is a fine American lad. His family are fine Americans. I've known him for 50 years. There's no red, no red menace, no commie, pinko, fellow travelers. This is a good American. I'll vouch for him. Yeah. Chairman says, <clears throat> thank you, Congressman Flood. Mr. Hirschfeld, you may leave with the thanks of the committee. Wow. My cousin's relieved. He goes home. Yeah. His father gets a bill for $35,000 wow. from Flood's law firm. Oh, man. But 35 grand was like in 1952. Probably like three times. $150,000. Yeah. So my uncle Leon, his father, calls Flood. And he says, I, I thought you were just going to help him out. He said, I did help him out. He's not in jail, is he? No, but I mean, all this money. I think he says, do you want him to go back before the committee? Mm. So they had to pay him. And that was wow. done all the time to yeah. these patriots. Oh, man. Wow. Anyway, wow. not yeah. to beat it to death, but I'm in my fifth final year in architecture at Carnegie Tech, mm -hmm. five-year course. Yeah. And I depend on scholarships mm -hmm. and jobs. So I had a lot of scholarships, but I also had to buy a lot of materials for architecture. Mm -hmm. I had to buy crescent boards. I had to buy drafting paper, pens, pencils, paints, all kind of stuff. Yeah. And I also had to buy slide rule because there were no computers then other than an abacus. Mm -hmm. It was expensive. So I was managing perfectly in the fifth year, the final year. There's a sub-senior year. That's the fourth year. Senior year is the fifth year. And I'm waiting for my $600 scholarship from a foundation that owns the planetarium, yeah. Science Foundation, who'd been giving me full tuition scholarships and part tuition scholarships through the preceding four years. I need this 600 bucks for the last year. Yeah. And the president of the university calls me into his office. I'd seen him, I'd never met him. He said, sit down, Ron, I know who you are. I said, I know who you are. He says, he said, I'm, I've looked up your career. He says, you've done great. He said, and I know you, your family has no money because your mother met John Knox Shearer, the head of the Department of Architecture, who mm -hmm. was impressed with her artistry, but told me this kid, his mother, she's a piano teacher, but she has another son. There's no money there. Yeah. So he says, how badly do you need this $600 to finish the semester? Mm. I said, I, I really need it. I've yeah. got a lot of supplies to get through the semester. And that costs money. Mm -hmm. and, and also, I want to be able to take some electives because I have plenty of holes in my schedule. And I got to pay for those. Mm -hmm. He said, then I'm going to talk to you like a father. And he shows me the loyalty oath from this company. Mm. He said, you have to sign it or they won't give you $600. And he said, don't tell me you don't want to sign it. They have no right. I said, yeah, fuck them. He mm -hmm. said, like a father, I'm going to tell you. Do you want to throw away the four years where you broke your ass to get to where you are now and not be able to graduate with your class and not be able to go for your registration as an architect because you got to have the equivalent of three years working with a firm mm -hmm. before you can take the test? He said, think. And I said, I thought, I'll sign it. He said, hold your nose and sign it. Yeah. So that's how deep it went. Wow. 
Anyway, wow. you didn't need to hear that. But if I'm talking about me, God knows what you're going to hear. <laughs> and every bit of it is sta is staying in because I mean, like this, I I'm I've been feeling like the same sort of feeling that I felt when I would encounter Stan Lee. How you just want to like sit down on the floor and just listen to him talk, yeah. and because you're that. going you're going to learn, you're going to be inspired, and that's basically like how I'm feeling right now. So, and if, and if I'm, and if I'm feeling like that, I really, really believe my, my listeners are as well. And I so, believe it too. Yeah. I do believe it too. Yeah, absolutely. So with, so with that in mind, you're getting into, you're getting into television and you're getting into which now the specific shows that you've worked on, you worked on Andy Griffith, right? Uh, yeah. I, that what that was later. Cause this yeah. was, this was 1963. Mm. So the shows I loved were The Twilight Zone, yeah. Have Gun, Will Travel, mm -hmm. The Secret Lives of Dobie Gillis, starring mm -hmm. Bob Denver, yep. whom I met on a, on a special I wrote for Robert Goulet. And we both knew the guy who had created The Secret Life of Dobie Gillis and later did House Calls. And he was the guy who really rewrote the book for South Pacific, a great writer who was a friend of mine named Max Shulman. Mm -hmm. I talked with Bob about Max Shulman, and then I did a lot of Gilligan's Islands. And Bob was a friend because we That's both great. knew Max Shulman. Yeah. Anyway, well, I'm getting lost here talking about, okay, Secret Lives of Dobie Gillis. There, was, there were a couple of detective shows that I liked. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them, I forget the detective's name was Rocky something. And uh, they were okay. And I loved the Goldbergs. Mm -hmm. I loved the Goldbergs because when I grew up, anti-Semitism in America was really at its peak. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I watched the German-American Bund, Nazis, march mm -hmm. in Wharton, West Virginia. Yeah. I saw the Klan march there. My father had his men's clothing store window broken most Saturday nights because his customers, who were all guys that worked at the steel mill, mm -hmm. would get drunk, break the Jew's window. But because they liked him, they'd come back on Monday and give him $4 or $7. The window cost 8 mm. But they loved my dad because he spoke every language. I mean, yeah. people would come in. Nobody understood him. And there were Ukrainians, Russians, Greeks. Uh, Poles, I mean, pick something, uh, Iranians. My dad spoke almost every language. Somebody would come in that was new, they'd say, talk to Louis. Yeah. So they, they liked Louis. Anyway, that anti-Semitism, it was radio and the movies that helped me know that there was a better world yeah. and that America was a better country and would be. Yeah. Because my grandfather had to emigrate twice to get to the United States. Wow. Once he escaped from Tsarist Russia and ended up in South Africa, mm -hmm. where he became a barber at age 11. I wrote wow. a short story about it called How My, How My Grandfather Became a Barber. Mm -hmm. That's gotten some very good reviews. And my father had to emigrate twice, once from Russian Poland Mm -hmm. In those days, Russia controlled everything. All the Baltic states was all part of the Soviet of the Russian Empire. Yeah. And then he became a shirt maker in London and had to emigrate again to America. Mm -hmm. He became a guy who sold shirts 
and suits for Hart Schaffner and Marx up and down the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And he was so successful that he opened his own store. Yeah. Which, anyway, Hollywood was skirting the edges of dealing with anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. which is why a lot of people became communists. Not because they wanted to be communist, right. but because Russia was the only country who was pointing a finger at Hitler and saying, bad, Mussolini, bad, Franco, bad. These mm-hmm. people are wrong. And they pointed it at racism all the time. Yeah. That was the only game in town where you could hear somebody say, just a minute, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. It was so bad that there was a radio show featuring Father Coughlin, a priest mm-hmm. from the Church of the Little Flower in Detroit. Yeah. And his radio broadcasts were denouncing the Zionist international Jews who controlled everything. Wow. The banks, the movies, newspapers. Yeah. And at the time, I thought, if we control everything, can I have a bigger allowance? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Hollywood, the movies, mm-hmm. the radio shows, Little Orphan Annie, mm. Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. Yeah. Uh, trying to remember, there are so many others. Uh, yes, The Inner Sanctum mm. and The Mysterious Traveler. And anyway, Captain Midnight mm-hmm. and Sergeant Preston of the Yukon and his dog King. On King, on you Huskies. <laughs> the Shadow. <laughs> I love The Shadow. The Shadow. Yep. You have a chance to listen to it. I really recommend it. Absolutely, yeah. Orson Welles. Scare the hell out of me. So yeah. here I am. It's the 50s, and I'm watching television. I told you some of the shows I like. Mm-hmm. My favorite Martian was another one. Yeah. And I had been in summer stock. I did that for two summers. And normally, I would work every break there was. Yeah. I would work. The post office was the best job at Christmas because you could work a triple shift. Mm-hmm. You could work around the clock and you got double time and golden time. Yeah. I love that nice. little post office story. I'm working at maybe three in the morning and the guy, we're all sitting in benches, sorting letters and stamping things that aren't legible. Mm-hmm. And this guy suddenly falls forward and drops. The supervisor runs up, takes his pulse, takes his time card and punches him out. I guess you have to pay Double time if you wow. did. And I thought, wow. that's the coldest thing I ever saw. Yeah. That same year, like this was right before Christmas, which was a madhouse. Yeah. I come back from lunch, which was then 11 at night, because I'm in the, which was an eight to five, five to one, one pumpkin. I'm in that shift. Yeah. And I come back from, from my lunch with friends, and the police are all over the place. Mm. They're in the monitor, they're behind the pigeonholes, they're everywhere, they're behind the mailbags. And the supervisor says, ignore them, go to your places, ignore them, go to your places. So we do that and we're wondering, what the fuck's happening? Right. A guy comes in whistling and they grab him on his lunch break. He put on a rubber devil mask and motorman's gloves and he robbed a drugstore. And he comes in 
wearing his po temporary postal worker's ID with his picture on it. Oh, man. <laughs> he screams, who ratted me out? I'll catch you. Who turned me over? Master criminal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting lost. <laughs> anyway, I worked summer stock. Yeah. I was a scene designer because I studied that at Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie mm -hmm. Tech. Yeah. And I was also in B stock companies, an actor, a singer, a dancer, whatever. Mm -hmm. Great fun. But I learned a lot and later got my union ticket for being a, a designer, mm -hmm. theater, theater designer. Yeah. And by the way, that union used to be part of the paper hangers union. So it was really illustrious. And anyway, I met a guy who was then second only to Bob Newhart in being the biggest comic in the country. Oh, wow. Bob Newhart. I do. He was giant. This mm -hmm. guy was Shelley Berman. He was giant too. Mm -hmm. Shelley Berman, just as big as Newhart. Yeah. And wonderful, hilarious stuff. He's in Pittsburgh at a restaurant nightclub called the Vogue Terrace. Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm going to try to write. So I called his room. I got him. He says, I think I remember you. I said, you have to. And I said a few things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember you. He said, what, what do you want? I said, I think I can write for you. He said, nah, schmuck, you can't write for me. I said, well, take a look. If it's, if it's shit, you'll call me and say, I told you it was shit. Never right. bothered me again. Mm -hmm. He says, oh, all right. So he gave me his home address in New York. So I sat down and I wrote a bunch of radio sketches. Mm -hmm. And I wrote episodes of some of the shows I watched. Mm. The Goldbergs, Have Gun, Will Travel. I had a big stack. Yeah. And jokes, a bunch of jokes. Mm -hmm. So he calls me back after about three weeks later and he says, I read it. You can do this shit. Come to New York. Meet nice. me at the Perry Como show. I'll get you an agent. Great. Mm -hmm. So I arranged with my practice to take a week off. Mm -hmm. I go to New York. I go to the Perry Como show. And Shelly's there. And I said, Shelly. He says, I'm having a nervous breakdown. I'm going to Jamaica. Please don't speak to me. I said, it's wrong, Shelly. I just came in from Pittsburgh. He said, it'll be there when you return. <laughs> what am I going to do? And so, as would luck, as luck would have it, my fraternity brother, Gary Smith, mm -hmm. was the scene designer and Emmy-winning scene designer for the Como Show. Ah. Later went on to be the most successful producer in television, producing the Democratic National Committee shows for years, producing all the Barbara Streisand specials, producing everything. Yeah. Anyway, he says, he's not going to talk to you now? I said, no. He said, well, fuck him. He said, did you bring anything? I said, yes. And I showed him. Yeah. He said, let me give it to our head writer. Mm -hmm. It was a guy named Goodman Ace, who was a very revered radio writer who wrote a show for him and his wife called Easy Aces. Mm. that had been on on radio for 20 years, was always top rated, funny. Yeah. He says, I'll have Goody read it. And meanwhile, I'll take you to lunch at the Palm. I've never been to the Palm. Mm -hmm. Where later I met the grandson of one of the original owners, and he took me underground to the secret passageway accessible only from the river, where they Whoa. would bring in booze during prohibition. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, I had a lobster. It was fabulous. Yeah. Come back, and uh, 
Gary said, that's Goodman Ace. And Ace says, is that the guy? And he says, yeah. So he says, come with me. So I go with him and he takes me into the writer's room. He said, this mm -hmm. is the writer. If any of these Jews die, I'm hiring you. <laughs> he said, but I don't have enough money in the budget now to bring on anybody new. So I'm going to send you to William Morris to see Larry Auerbach and tell him to sign you. Wow. Lady, Larry Auerbach, later chairman of the board of the William Morris Agency, my first agent. So I went over and he said, if Goody says you're good, you're better than good, but you can't write from Pittsburgh. You yeah. have to come to New York. Mm -hmm. And I did. And as I told you that first year, I ended up doing 10 times better than I did in my best year as an architect. So it was amazing. Insane. Yeah, that is amazing. And what, and so what got you into with the, with the writing that you were doing, you eventually got into producing as well, correct? Absolutely. But I avoided producing for one reason. Mm -hmm. The, if you were a writer and produced, you didn't get residuals. The Writers ah. Guild didn't have a formula for that. So I wanted those residuals and I also wanted the health, the health insurance. Yeah. Because I had two kids, two smart kids, mm -hmm. and a wife and I, I wanted those things because yeah. my father had died without any insurance at all. Mm -hmm. And I know how tough that was. Right. And as a result of that, when I was successful, I was insured up the ass for millions of dollars. Yeah. And made a fortune to make sure that my kids, my wife, mm -hmm. didn't end up the way my mother did. Mm. And we did. Wow. But anyway, I was not given assignments to do the writing I wanted to do. And I also brought in a play that I had wrote, that I had written, everybody loved. Mm -hmm. said, we're not going to represent you as a playwright or as a guy writing for television or movies right now. You've got to start making money for yourself and for us. Yeah. So you're funny. Ever done stand-up? I said, yeah, but this is, well, you're going to do that. And you're also going to write for comics. Mm -hmm. That's how you're going to start. And you're going to start writing for black comics because mm. they don't have the budget. And if you can handle them, and a lot of them are really talented. If they weren't black, they'd be all over television because mm -hmm. then you seldom saw anybody black on television. Right. Anyway, that was one of the greatest things because I used to be shy, but mm -hmm. when I had to get up and do a stand-up, forget shy. Yeah. You just got to do it and you mm -hmm. better be funny because nightclubs in those days, it wasn't like comedy clubs now. Mm -hmm. People will laugh even if it isn't funny because mm -hmm. they don't want to make somebody feel bad. Right. There, there were always the front tables were mafia goons with hookers. Yeah. And they'd be drinking heavily and they had big, heavy ashtrays. You weren't funny. They threw the ashtray. Sometimes they run at the stage and throw people off the stage physically. Wow. So you had better fucking be funny. Yeah. So I was getting paid to do that. Mm -hmm. And then the black comics, some of whom had seen my act in, in the Club Elegon in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. they had a featured black ensemble orchestra and dancers. Mm -hmm. And they saw me. So that was my entree into black entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful. Because yeah. Amos Amos, the cookie, mm -hmm. yeah. was the black agent representing the crossover artists 
like mm -hmm. Sam Cooke and Johnny Nash. Oh, wow. And Ella Fitzgerald and uh, Sassy. I can't think of her name right now. And Billy Eckstein. I knew Billy Eckstein and uh, Errol Garner from Pittsburgh because mm -hmm. I used to go to the best jazz nightclub in Pittsburgh, which was in the Hill District, yeah. the Black Ghetto, that August Wilson wrote all of his plays about. Mm -hmm. Do you know the August Wilson's plays? Oh, yeah. Mar Lady, Black Bottom, and so on. Mm -hmm. I knew all those areas. I didn't know the, the decades, right. but I knew them, which was wonderful. Yeah. Because I'll put it this way. My mother and father always said to me, anytime there'd be a black person, we were slaves in Egypt. Mm -hmm. They are unfairly slaves here and they're still slaves. Yeah. We have got to help them. We must always work together. So we had a black maid named Betty, mm -hmm. Betty Wilson. She had lunch with us. She'd bring her kids and I would paint and draw with them and my brother. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, like, it wasn't like they were the other. They right. were people, people. Mm -hmm. So when I met these black comics and singers and composers and so on, yeah, I was home. It was great. Nice. Great. And it really stood me in good stead later mm -hmm. because civil rights, I always knew from civil rights. And my grandfather was an insurance salesman mm -hmm. after he stopped being a barber. And he worked for the only insurance company that would insure Jews for more than 10 grand. New wow. York life. Okay. So he was the first one to sell over $3 million in life policies. So he was somebody. Yeah. But he also put together an insurance plan for the Brotherhood of Pullman Porters mm -hmm. because he knew A. Philip Randolph, the guy who put that union together. Mm. And he arranged for pennies a week life insurance policy for the port porters. So if they die or they're injured, their families would get some money. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'll, I'll cap it off with this. In high school, I was asked to run for class president. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm honored, but I don't think I'll win. Why not? Well, there are a lot of these high school fraternities and they have their pick. Mm -hmm. And there are more of them than anybody else. I said, well, we still want you to run. I won. Nice. I won by a lot. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I didn't know how it happened. Yeah. One of my black friends came up to me and he says, congratulations, why you won. I said, I have no idea. He said, because we voted for you. I said, who nice. are we? He said, me. Everybody that looks like me. Why? I said, because you're crazy. He said, no. <laughs> he said, you're the only one that talks to us. Mm. How about that? Yeah. It's amazing how that Sorry happens. i to get into this emotional stuff, but no, you've that's... opened the floodgate and here comes the bullshit. Yep. <laughs> Hey, keep it coming. Keep it coming. I'm, I'm, I'll stand right in, right in the center of it, ready to receive whatever you got. So. so so, anyway, I'm suddenly writing for comics yeah. and doing comedy record albums, which Ooh. was very good money. Yeah. So I did one for the Smothers Brothers, whom you probably never heard of. Dick and Tom. And, yep. And I got a nine cents a band. And there were like 11 of my bands on there. So that's... 99 cents a record mm -hmm. and it was selling in the millions wow that adds up yeah they never paid me oh. they never paid what they owed me and the william morris office who was their agent as well mm -hmm. conveniently lost the contract so mm -hmm. i never got the money but years later i was a writer on 
the first family rides again, the Ronald Reagan album. Okay. All right. So I wrote a lot on that mm -hmm. and all of it stayed on. I had 12 bands or no, it was only six, but one of them was very long. Anyway, yeah. it was a lot of money. Again, they didn't pay. I sued. I yeah. got the writers together and sued. And the problem was that Boardwalk Records was a mobbed up company. Oh. They never paid anything. Wow. Anything. So I found that out the hard way because I'm working at my desk and my desk is in the side of my house and I can look up to the adjacent lot where they're building a new house. Yeah. There's a guy on the roof in a business suit. He looks down at me and he does this. He points like a gun at me with his finger. And mm. then he goes, Yeesh. and I didn't know what the hell that was, but I didn't like it. So I ran outside mm -hmm. and he's gone. He's gone. Yeah. And during that same period of time before that, cars had been pulling up on our driveway in Beverly Hills, honking at two or three in the morning or flashing the headlights in the window and mm -hmm. then going away. So we were being, I was being harassed. I had no idea why. Yeah. Shortly after that, this, I get a call. Mm -hmm. This is Friedman. I said, it's an unlisted number, so you should know. Yeah. He said, Friedman, the writer, right? I said, yeah. He says, good. I just want to know for sure that when it goes down, I get the right guy. Oh. I said, what the hell are you talking about? He said, I got your name in my pocket, sir. And he hung up. What the hell is oh, that? Boy. The next day I'm at the chiropractor because I had trouble with my sciatica. Mm -hmm. And this, this chiropractor was one of the in chiropractors. Mm -hmm. So the main room were like six tables, six tables, and 12 masseurs. Yeah. So I'm at one of the tables, and the guy who owns the spa says to me, Jesus, I got you loosened up and you're tight as a drum. What's the matter? I said, I didn't sleep. I got this weird call. Guy calls up and he says, after I see him point a gun at me with his finger, I got your name in my pocket. And the guy at the next table stands up. And he says, I'm a United States attorney. Please come with me. And I said to the, the chiropractor who owned it, Lee Perry, I said, what? He said, he is. Go see what he wants. Mm. So I go in the other room with him and he says, I got your name in my pocket is a contract kill phrase. Oof. It comes from the old days yeah. when somebody was hiring a hit they would put the name on a slip of paper. Yeah. The hit man would put it in his pocket. And when the deed was done, he'd come back and they'd burn that slip of paper and he'd get paid. He said, somebody paid a pro to rattle your cage. Mm. Are you fucking somebody's wife? I said, yes, mine. <laughs> he said, no, no. He said, uh, are you in any lawsuits? I said, yeah. He said, with whom? I said, with Boardwalk Records because of the ring. He said, that's it. It's a mobbed up company. Mm. Somebody there decided to scare you off and let that you weren't safe. I said, what the hell am I going to do? He says, well, I'm going to call the Beverly Hills Police Department and the Los Angeles Police Department mm -hmm. and arrange for you to meet with a lieutenant in L.A. and a sergeant in Beverly Hills, mm -hmm. whom I know, tell your story. And listen to them. Yeah. You have a gun. I said, yeah, I have a, a 357 Magnum 
and a police special 38. I said, with a long barrel. And I said, I only got them because there was a sale in a sporting goods store that was closing. So they were cheap. And I figured, what the hell? Yeah. He said, you know how to use a gun? I said, I was in the basic training in the army. Yeah. He said, all right. I'm going to tell these cops, but I'm calling Beverly Hills Gun Club now because you and your wife are going to go down with your guns after mm-hmm. you see the cops. Yeah. I go to see the LAPD guy first. He asked the same question. Are you fucking somebody's wanting He says, yeah. He says, I talked to the U.S. attorney about you. He said, how long do you want to live? I said, what are you talking about? I want to live as long. He said, that's right. Don't let them fucking take your life away from you. Mm-hmm. Now, can you start your car without getting inside? I said, why? So if there's a bomb in there, it'll just blow my arm off? He said, yeah. Yeah? And he said, the the attorney said, you got guns. I said, right. He says, okay. I know he called Beverly Hills Gun Club. I'm going to back it up. Get your ass down there with your wife Mm -hmm. and fire enough rounds so you're comfortable. And keep it with you at all times. Don't say I told you. That's illegal. But Mm -hmm. keep it with you. Yeah. Maybe you'll get one of them before they get you. Yeah. Don't keep a schedule. Do not be predictable in where you go to drive around. Mm-hmm. Don't sit in front of any lighted window at night. Never do that. Mm. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. That's oh, it. Geez. I said, that's it. He said, wow. that's what you can do. Same thing at Beverly Hills Cop. Sergeant yeah. Hagwood. Same mm-hmm. thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Good luck. So I called my wife. I said, we're going to go to the battle. You're going to fight. She said, I am. I said, you're going to get down there and you're going to do it. Right. So we went down there and we must have fired 300 rounds. Mm. But by the end of that, pretty good. Mm-hmm. It felt good to know we could use the gun. Yeah. But for the next four or five weeks, middle of the night, there's a noise. We're up there with the guns, with the lights on. Yeah. Terrified and shaking. And our house had windows, all windows in the back and big windows in the front. Right. And when lights would sweep back and wake, we're out there. Then I get a call from the U.S. attorney who said, I just spoke to Sergeant Hagwood. He had a good idea. I said, what's that? He said, call your lawyer who's handling this. Mm-hmm. Tell him to call Boardwalk's lawyer and say, if anything happens to my client, the same thing will happen to your client's. We have friends, too. Mm. I said, my lawyer won't say that. He says, you got a gun. Yeah. Go down there and stick the gun in his fucking ear and tell him to make the call. So I called him. My lawyer, he said, I'm not going to do that. I said, I'm coming down with a gun. Mm -hmm. And the cops told me, he says, all right, all right, I'll call. Ten minutes later, he calls me back. I said, what happened? He says, I told him. I said, what did he say? He said, thank you very much and hung up. I said, that's it? And the cops like, what said, what does that mean? <laughs> Message received. You're off the hook. How about that? Wow. Wow. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Who needed it? <laughs> Not me. Jeez. Wow. And where were we? I'm working nightclubs. Yeah. Working with all these great, wonderful black people. Just... Mm-hmm. Better than the salt of the earth. Yeah. I mean, Scatman Crothers, who was on Cheap mm-hmm. One Man, I wrote a lot of those. Yeah. was a friend. 
And he was like a rainbow. The guy was just marvelous. Yeah. And I brought my daughter in to see a run through of a pilot I had written. And I ran into Scatman in the halls. Her name is Liza. So he played Liza on his banjo. No, it was on his mandolin. Yeah. And sang it. Uh, was it great? Great. Nice. And once I asked him, I know what black people get treated like. I mean, I've been there. I know yeah. all from Jim Crow, Crow Jim. Mm -hmm. I know from Becker Woods and the whole fucking mess. Right. I said, but you're nothing but smiles. Mm -hmm. He says, yeah, why? I said, no, he says, I'm not going to let them take my joy away. Nice. That's great. Anyway, that always gets me. Yeah. Didn't need to know that. Yeah. But I was doing great, really making a lot of money. Yeah. And I wanted to write episodes, mm -hmm. not for comics. Because yeah. I really got sick of going to watch them rehearse the material at Erie, Pennsylvania at two in the morning in some club where the opening act is Doc Searcy. Mm -hmm. Ever heard of Doc Searcy? Doc Searcy. That name's big not guy, coming to me. Yeah. Big guy in a white time tails. Yeah. And he had a padlock on his fly. <laughs> Combination padlock. Wow. And he'd go around and sing, what is the number? What is the number? Everybody yelled, <laughs> that is not the number. Somebody said, 69. That is not, wait a minute, what was that? 69. That is the number. And he'd open the padlock and show his dick. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Classy. Classy. And wow. there was another guy called B.S. Pulley. Yeah. B.S. stood for bullshit. Yeah. And his partner was H.S. Gump. H.S. for horseshit. Oh, jeez. And his act was <laughs> take his dick out, put it in a box of White Owl cigars, open it and go around and say, get your White Owl cigars. <laughs> like no. to try to smoke that one, honey. Oh, jeez. I mean, the lowest. Oh. The lowest. It's right at a bachelor party, like the, the whole oh, hot dog God. scene. <laughs> well, the thing is, the managers, big ads, Woody Allen's manager, Jack Rollins, yeah. saw an act I'd written and saw me, and he said, I want to manage you. I said, Jack, manage me as a writer. He says, we'll get to that. I want to manage you as a stand-up. I said, Whoa. I don't want to do that. I've been to all these shit places. Yeah. I do not want to be sitting in Erie, Pennsylvania at two in the morning, mm -hmm. watching shit on television and eating cold pizza. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. I want to be with my family. I have two kids. I can't do that. Yeah. So I'm sorry that didn't happen. And later, when I was doing a lot of The Odd Couple, yeah, Jack Ludman and Tony Randall's manager, Abby mm -hmm. Gresham. Abby was famous because he looked like he died three days ago. I <laughs> mean, really pale. Yeah, really looked like he died. And the joke was when Ted Turner was colorizing old television shows, mm -hmm. everybody said his next project was to colorize Abby Gresham. Jeez. <laughs> anyway, he said, "I want to manage you. Yeah, I can put you in Vegas right now for seventy-five hundred a week." Wow. He will open for, and he mentioned some singer, I'm trying to remember who it was, Rosemary Clooney. Oh, wow. I said, that's, that's great. Great, Abby, but I don't want to do that. I don't like went through the whole thing. I don't want that life. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm here. I'm waiting. And let me tell you the magic I can do. He said, there was this couple that did an ice skating routine on a pad, on a Masonite pad. He said, they were getting $375 a week. Mm -hmm. And they begged me to represent them. 
He says, I got them $800 a week and they were feature billed and their next booking was $1,200 a week. He said, they changed the name of their act from the Dancing Sweethearts to the Greshlers. (laughs) Honor of me. Wow. (laughs) I "I don't ice skate and I'm not changing my name to Greshler. Right. (laughs) So anyway, every step I moved up. Yeah. I face the glass ceiling, mm-hmm. I cast iron ceiling. Yeah. I write stand-up, I do stand-up. Well, you can't write stories. You can't write half hours. So it took a while before somebody would give me a shot on car 54, where are you? Oh, wow. Yes. So yeah. Fred Gwynn later became a friend. He played Muldoon. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, later Herman Munster. Yep. Anyway, I later had a pilot for him at CBS with the golden girl of the moment, who was a German girl, Elke Summers. Oh, okay. Yes, I knew her because producing couple Mm -hmm. going way back, the father owned Universal and his father owned all the movie pictures, all the theaters in Wisconsin and in uh, Indiana. So Mm -hmm. they were really wired. Anyway, I had this pilot starring Fred and I was supposed to go to New York and talk to Fred because mm-hmm. he knew me, wanted to see me before he signed on for the pilot. Yeah. So we got to see him. He was a lovely guy. He was illustrating children's books because he was a good artist. That's what he really wanted to be. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Anyway, everything's set with Fred. And when I come back, I'm told I'm fired. Hmm. I said, why? Because Elkie didn't think Fred was handsome enough to play her husband. Hmm. Anyway, where did that come from? But, so the first show I wrote was Car 54. Yeah. Joey Ross was the star. Mm-hmm. His last name was Tootie, the character's name. Gunther Tootie, yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yep. <laughs> he was the lowest comic ever. He would do things like, I got a new dog, it's a Mexican Spitz. Somebody says, how do I know it's a Mexican Spitz? Because it goes, senor. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and he always married hookers. Really? He married hookers, one after the other. Wow. And Nat, Nat Hyken, who was the creator and the producer of the show, mm-hmm. and had begun producing at, at War with the Army, the early, the Bilko show with Phil Silvers. Oh, yeah. I'm in a meeting with him. And his secretary calls him and says, uh, Joey Ross is here. He said, I don't know. He says to me, he says, can you stand it? I said, stand what? Joey Ross wants to come in. I said, I can stand it, sure. So Joey comes in, go, ooh, 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 ooh. I just got my divorce from Madeline. And Matt says, oh, great, great. What is she, number three or four? He said, maybe five. Maybe Maybe five, five. wow. He said, it made a great deal. He said, I just had to pay her 8,000 bucks. That's it. No alimony. He said, and I figured it out based on her rates. I got fucked in a blowjob. Bargain basement. It was worth it. Wow. Yes. Jeez. Wow. That's who I got, out. I got nothing there. <laughs> so after I did that, yeah. which wasn't, wasn't, wasn't filmed because the show was canceled. Mm-hmm. I got a My Favorite Martian. Oh, nice. Yeah. 
and that nice. was successful. Mm-hmm. And then I met, met Bill Bixby, who became a good friend, mm-hmm. and Ray Walston, who became a friend. Yeah. Later on, working with them both on the on Sledgehammer on ABC. Really? Yeah. I, I remember that. Sledgehammer. Oh yeah, yeah, with yep. David uh, David Rashi, right? David Rashi, who became yeah. a friend. Yeah. That was one of the toughest jobs I ever did. Really? Because it was renewed. It was a hit. First mm-hmm. season, it's renewed for the second season. Yeah. But the star will not work with the producer, Alan Spencer. Will not work with him. Really? Alan was a kid. He'd never written anything before, let alone had it produced. Mm-hmm. And now he's producing a network show. And he, he was really paranoid. Yeah. Didn't know who to trust. So he didn't trust, pardon me, anybody. And he, he drove his writing staff nuts. Mm-hmm. He was also always calling them at four in the morning where he'd show up to pardon me, to see if they were really writing. And then he had something with David, which is he accused David of beating him up when he actually was, I hear, punching himself. So David had in his contract rewritten that if this kid came in, it's over. He has to be paid an enormous amount. Wow. So I liked Alan, but it was an impossible situation. Yeah. Anyway, I managed to get it to work and it worked great. It worked great. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed that and I enjoyed David. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed Alan until the whole thing blew up. Right. Well, and if Alan's listening, I still think you're terrific. <laughs> if Alan's listening, fantastic. I think that would love I'd love to know that. So yeah, wow. So you've so you're just like so just not slowly, but like you're working your way up there in throughout the ranks. That's great. Breakthrough. I had a breakthrough that cast on ceiling every time I Yeah. I wanted to write episodic. I did. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm writing Bewitched. I'm writing Chico and the Man. I'm writing Gilligan's Island. I'm writing 54 episodes of Fantasy Island. Many episodes wow. of and Hutch. Mm-hmm. Vegas, The Andy Griffith Show, All in the Family. Mm-hmm. I Dream of Jeannie. Yeah. Thinking Starsky and Hutch, The Odd Couple. I mean, yeah, I got to meet I got to meet both Jack Klugman and Tony Randall when they did the Sunshine Boys on Broadway. It was wonderful. Jack Jack have his voice then, or was he? His he. It's it's funny because like he was. I was in the balcony. I got I was able to get a ticket for like I think it was like ten fifteen dollars or something like that. I'm in the balcony, and yeah, he is raspy as can be. But I understood every single word he said. He worked he was so such, hard to do yeah. that. And so, yeah, yeah, and I was so into it. Yeah, I was so into it. And then afterwards, I knew I had to get, get over to the stage door. And Jack was, Jack was there. And he, he could only mouth the words like, thank you. And big smiles and everything. But he had his own Sharpie. He made sure yep. that he was going to, to sign everything that was sign. in front of him. Such a such a, a prince of a person. And then not oh, long yeah, after that. Jack. Oh yeah. And, and then and, and I got too. and I got to sh- shake his hand and everything. I got to say thank you. Got to tell him I was a fan. Like and this was and it was only a couple of years before that that I saw him in Twelve Angry Men, which like it having seen that in college, I was like, how did I not see this earlier? It was like, this is absolutely brilliant. And it became it's one of my favorite films. Yeah. Really terrific. Yeah. And Reginald so, Rose. And then, it. I'm sorry? Reginald Rose wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then not long after that, that's when Tony came out. And 
he, again, gracious, assigning everyone's programs and everything. And at one point he's all finished. He's walking away. And I knew I had to say something. So I went up to him and I just went, excuse me, Mr. Randall. And he turns around, smile. And I said, I just want to let you, I've been watching the show since I was four. And which gave him a, a laugh. And if I, if I can make Tony Randall laugh, like that right there was, was enough right uh, there. So. He loved it when people knew who he was yeah. and loved what he did. Yeah. And I said to him, so you've been making me laugh now for about 17 years. So I wanted to say thank you. And he shook my hand. He's very appreciative and everything. Thanked me and then stepped into his car and he was off. And I don't remember hitting the ground when I went from the theater over to the subway. I was I so that. like, <clears throat> I really yeah. get that. Yeah. Like it was, and it was such an amazing moment. Well, they both became friends. Yeah. Because I did so many episodes, but I had known Jack earlier mm -hmm. because he was a an alum alumnus of Carnegie Tech. Oh, really? He went to the drama department. Ah, okay. A few years ahead of me. And so I would talk about that. And I said, Jack, who was the dean when you were there? He said, Henry Betcher. Henry Betcher was one of the loveliest, most elegant, brilliant, kind, and caring people in the world. Yeah. He really cared about his students. I mean, he was just marvelous. Yeah. And he would make Noel Coward look butch. <laughs> so I said, well, did you read for Henry? He says, yeah, but let me tell you how I got there. Yeah. He said, I was a waiter at Bookbinders in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I was into the Shies for Seven Large, into the Shylocks for $7,000. He was an inveterate horse player. Yeah. He later bought a horse that in a, in a claiming situation, and the horse never lost. Wow. Yes. Made a fortune with that horse. Yeah. Anyway, he said, so I'm into the Shies for Seven Large, and this guy comes to see me in a restaurant. He says, hey, Klugman. Saturday, I'm coming here. You're going to pay what you owe, including the VIG. And if you don't, I'm going to tear off your legs and shove them up your ass one at a time. Jeez. See you Saturday. And Jack said, I decided that wasn't a good career move. <laughs> so I thought, he seems I'm going to nice. be an actor in this. <laughs> so he went in. And as I said, so you read for Henry. Yes. What did he say? He said, you're not an actor. You're a truck driver. But there's a war on and we need men. You're in. <laughs> wow. Yep. Wow. Oh, that's great. That's great. And Randall was the opera nut of all times. Mm -hmm. And I told you my mother was an opera singer. Yep. And my brother had a scholarship to the Metropolitan Opera, which he never took. He went to the Pittsburgh Opera instead. Yeah. And as a kid of 13, he was the leading tenor in the men's course at the Beth Sholem Synagogue for the high holidays. Wow. And they paid him 1500 bucks, mm -hmm. which is helped us live, keep going. Yeah. At the same time, I would do the children's service for 350 bucks. <laughs> but he had a golden voice. Yeah. And all the men in the men's choir had been opera stars in Europe. Mm -hmm. In Hungary, in Denmark, in Germany, in Poland, I'm trying to think of that, in, Be in Belarusia, whatever it was called then, part of the Soviet network. Yeah. They all had 
their concentration camp numbers on. Mm-hmm. They loved him. They take him out for lunch on Yom Kippur when you're supposed to fast. Yeah. And then they get him bacon and shrimp <laughs> because <laughs> if God was alive, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have these fucking numbers. <laughs> We'd still be singing in Europe. Yeah. Anyway, occasionally a met- met- Metropolitan Opera star would be in Pittsburgh to be with the Pittsburgh Opera. Richard Crooks was one who was Jewish. Uh, I'm trying to remember the other one whose name is Robert Merrill was one, then very young. Yeah. Anyway, Richard Crooks was at the Beth Sholem and heard my brother, and he came to the house. I just wanted to see you. You come to New York, I'll adopt you. <laughs> and, and my mother said, he doesn't need anybody to adopt him. I'm his mother. <laughs> I'm alive. <laughs> so I knew every opera. Yeah. And I used to listen to the Metropolitan Opera every Saturday. Mm-hmm. I knew them. My brother knew them. We knew a lot of the arias. We, we could sing them. Him beautifully, me, eh, half-assed. Yeah. So when Tony checked me out and he said, who is this character? I said, he's the assassin in Rigoletto. Parafuccioli. And Parafuccioli. Anyway, he said, how do you that? And he told him about my mother and so on. He said, finally, I meet somebody who's not a Philistine in this swamp of ignorance. <laughs> I, want you to, I want to do an odd couple about the opera. Felix Unger's Opera Company. Oh, no. <laughs> I said, okay, if Gary Marshall says okay, he says, he's already said okay. <laughs> wow. I did. So I did, and that became, does your mother know you're out in Rigoletto, <laughs> which is one of my favorite odd couples mm-hmm. and yeah. a lot of other people as, to, as well. Oh, and Cheryl Mills, who was then the leading basso at the, the Met, was going to do it, and then he backed out because he had another performance. So Richard Fredericks, who was a baritone at the City Opera in New York, he did it. Mm-hmm. It was great. Wow. Wow. That's so cool. Anyway, I'm going on and on because my life is a tapestry that's unraveling now, and I'm trying to put the ends together. Uh, hey, you know, like I just like I said, I am keeping all this in. So this is this is this is out, outstanding. And this is definitely my season four premiere. So this is great. Uh, I can bring in new audience. Terrific. Yep. And if I can plug my book. By all means. It's called I Killed Optimus Prime, so sue me. It's, the, <laughs> it's mostly autobiography, secrets, mm-hmm. confessions of a Hollywood screenwriter. Yeah. And uh, it's also the story of how I wrote the movie, The Transformers, the movie. Right. Which is it's what we'll definitely be getting to. You know, because um, so it's with available, available on Amazon. And I am, if I, if I, I'm checking my Kindle, if I haven't already gotten it, I will be. Hope you enjoy it. Absolutely. And that you, we can promote it on what I'm on again, or that you'll promote it. By all means, by all means. So I have a comedy album called Christmas Songs for Jewish People. Christmas Songs for Jewish People. Christmas Songs for Jewish People, (laughs) which I sold to ABC Paramount Record Company Mm -hmm. by singing one of the songs to them. Yeah. And then they said, we're going to do it. We're going to get you the best klezmer orchestra made up of studio musicians in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You got to sing it. Yeah. Did you pay me? I'll sing it. Right. Anyway, the song that I did was, and my voice isn't what it used to be. Hark the herald angels sing. Nothing good is happening. <laughs> my son, Jake, the licensed plumber, called his 
left his wife for a Polish bomber. <laughs> and my daughter, Tammy Florence, graduate of Sarah Lawrence, <laughs> called us up last week from Rome. She's living with a dyke. She ain't coming home. Oh, <laughs> don't hawk me, angels. Please don't sing. Leave me alone. I'm suffering. <laughs> Oh, that's that's fabulous. That is fabulous. That is also available for me. You pay me $25 on PayPal. And if you're in the continental United States, I'll send it to you. Oh, that's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. My aluminum siding business, I've closed, so I can't (laughs) offer it. There you go. Now, with with that, you you had mentioned, you know, earlier on how you wanted to how you were told that you were too old so that you went um to write so then you ventured into animation now yeah. was it is it something that was it something about animation that really grabbed your attention or was it I one of those always, things where you just always 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 loved animation yeah always mm-hmm. and when i saw it it was in its infancy yeah i mean i saw steamboat willie they were mm-hmm. still showing that mm-hmm. when i was four or five and i loved it Wow. But early animation just had characters that kept moving. Mm-hmm. And they were always set to music for good reason. Yeah. Walt Disney said, if they're moving to music, everybody wants to watch a moving picture. Mm-hmm. And if the music's there, it's like the excuse for it all. And mm. so people don't stop and say, wait a minute, that's just a shitty drawing. Right. So it engages the viewer. Mm-hmm. engages their sense of rhythm because yeah. mu- uh, music speaks to another part of us. Mm-hmm. Now it's that wordless messenger that sets moods, changes moods. Plato thought music was so important. Yeah. He said parents should not allow their sons to listen to martial music until they're of age. Mm. So is music important? Look at the generations moved by music. Yeah. The swing generation. Mm-hmm. The rock generation, the rap generation. Yeah, I mean, music does move you. Mm-hmm. It does. So I loved it. Yeah. And I would stay often to see a bad movie just so I could watch the animation again. Because mm. in those days, Saturday matinee, you have a double feature. Right. You have a lot of featurettes like mm-hmm. uh, The March of Time, News yep. of the World, Bring Him Back Alive with Frank Buck. And uh, also the, the Joe Dokes series. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember, but there were so many of them. Yeah. I mean, you could fill the whole day and sit there for 15 cents or 10 cents. Right. Have popcorn and soda and, 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 and watch. Mm-hmm. So I love the cartoons. Yeah. Love them. And when the radio and when the radio shows became television shows, mm-hmm. as Buck Rogers did yeah. later as Flash Gordon did earlier, Mm -hmm. as Tom Mix did almost immediately and so on, Mm -hmm. that was fantastic. And when I saw Superman, the first animated Superman cartoon. Oh, the Fleischer ones, right? Thrilled beyond human measure. Yeah. Thrilled. Because I was there when the first Superman comics came out. My brother Mm -hmm. and I were looking at the real thing, the first one, the first action comic, the first Batman. Yep. The first Blue Beetle, the first Submariner, yeah. Prince Namor, who, by the way, looked like Fred Astaire. They based the character of the movie star, Fred Astaire. Really? Designed for Prince Namor. Take a look and then look at Fred Astaire. I'm not kidding. Yeah. 
Also, Captain really? Marvel mm -hmm. was Fred McMurray, a very popular movie star. I can see that. I That's just they did. In, in my head, yeah, I can see that. That's yeah. exactly what they did. And when I was working with Fred Astaire, I said, How do you feel about being known as Namor, Undersea Prince? He says, Who the fuck is that? <laughs> you don't know? I brought him in a comic book. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. He said, they stole my face. <laughs> I said, what does that matter? You're, you're famous. Right. Kids now watch and they, they know, they know, they don't know why they like you. Yeah. Just like with uh, Captain Marvel. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, anyway, so, so they you, all were. Mm -hmm. And it was thrilling. Thrilling. And my brother and I were both artists. My mm -hmm. mom was an artist too. Yeah. She won the Greater Pittsburgh Art Award gold medal when she was 83. Wow. And then she won it again at 88. <laughs> and we both paint and sculpt. Mm -hmm. And my wife does now too. It's just, so it's all our lives Excellent. doing that. So what we would do, my brother and I, is we see a comic book we like, we mm -hmm. draw it. We'd copy it. Yeah. So there was one which was a Donald Duck special with Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Mm -hmm. And it began at a pirate's pub called the Bucket of Blood in a pouring rain. <laughs> and we copied it. Yeah. I mean, it didn't look great, but we copied it, everything. Yeah. And then we left it on the porch and it got rained on. So we had to do it all over again. But it's an exercise. So it's like the more you do it, the better you get at it. So That's how much we loved it. Yeah. And unfortunately, my mom threw my comic books away. Uh, if she hadn't, yeah. I'd be a multimillionaire right now. Mm -hmm. Each yeah. of those original first editions, Batman. Yep. And I later met Bob Kane. Oh, yeah. The guy who created Batman. Mm -hmm. That's all he ever did in his life. Yeah. He did Batman at 15. Mm -hmm. And before he died, he was doing commissions. Oil mm -hmm. paintings of Batman, Batman and Robin, a penguin, the Riddler, and so on. Yeah. 150 grand each. Wow. 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 So please, I interrupted you when you were getting some story point. Oh, Forgive no worries. Me. No, no worries. No worries. So, so, so what was, which particular show really kind of, you know, grabbed you and said like, I want to write for that one. Well, at that point in my career, when I began, mm -hmm. I said the following. If I'm going to be a real writer, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to do a great job, whether I like the show or not. Mm -hmm. If I'm a doctor yeah. and somebody comes in, I'm having a heart attack. No, I don't do hearts. But yeah. if you have a kidney problem, I've got to be able as a professional to mm -hmm. do a great job on everything. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll be cutting my possibilities of income in half. Mm -hmm. So I didn't care. Any show I could get yeah. would be the one I do. And mm -hmm. I pride myself on when I did one or two episodes of a show I really didn't like. I did the best episodes they ever had of that show. Mm -hmm. And I did that on a number of shows. Yeah. Where I can still look at them or people will call. I just saw this mm -hmm. best episode in that year. Yeah. So anyway, I was ready to do whatever was offered me mm -hmm. because I wanted to be a writer who worked. Yeah. Some of my students over the years would say to me, because I taught many courses on writing the half-hour comedy, writing the hour drama, writing the animated, whatever. Mm -hmm. Students would say, I can't write funny. 
but I can't. I said, then you've just cost yourself 50% of your potential income. Yeah. Are you that rich? Are you that stupid? Mm. I can show you how to write it so that whatever funny bone you have, I can get it to kick you in the ass. Nice. I said, that doesn't mean you're going to be hilarious, but at least you'll know what funny is yeah. and you'll know how to set it up mm-hmm. so the audience will understand this is funny. Right. And one of these guys won a big award and a lot of money doing a comedy half hour in a competition where he got a pilot for CBS. Oh, wow. Which he fucked up. Ah. Because he reverted to, I can't do comedy. Mm. Anyway, he has a good career now, but. Yeah. So uh, the answer was, I'll write for anybody that wants to pay me. Mm -hmm. And if there's not a harmony there, I'll find a way to make it work. Yeah. Because that's what creative work is. Mm -hmm. You are obligated to find a way to make it work. Yeah. I don't like that. That's not what counts. Right. Example that I always give my writing classes. And that's this. If you were all, this entire room, this hall is filled with visual artists, mm-hmm. painters, sculptors, yeah. lithographers, people that do drawings. Right. And I hold up a painting to them and I say, tell me about this. They will say, I like the composition. The way the negative space is activated balances it, or I like the composition, it's really daring to have that figure in the foreground, but I see what you've done to balance it off so it doesn't just fall off the page. Or I like the use of negative space, or Mm -hmm. I like the use of complementary colors, that red on green and that orange on blue that really gives a jump. I like that, or I like the line variation, the searching line. Mm -hmm. I like to see that artist energy. And then the last question I ask is, how do you like it? Mm-hmm. And the answer would be, piece of shit. Eh, I don't know. Yeah, well, That's not much. I think it's terrific. Mm-hmm. Because liking it is not the point. Right. Understanding what's good about it and what's going to need to work about it mm-hmm. to make it effective, that's what's important. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway. so, so, so one of the... One of the big things that I remember and hold very, you know, near and dear to my heart were the first, were the first three, if I understand correctly, miniseries that started up G.I. Joe, a real American yes. hero. And so that was the the Mass Device or AKA a real American right. hero, the Revenge of Cobra, and then you right. had the Pyramid of Darkness. What was it like getting, I mean, you had, you had a lot of characters to set up. You had a, you had a very sprawling epic tale for all three of them really because they were all just which taking place together. all around the world yeah which held together yeah well hasbro did not believe that people writing for animation in hollywood were good writers wow animation writers were treated like shit mm. they had no guilt no protection mm-hmm. so anybody that hired them could really beat the shit out of them mm. and they did yeah didn't pay them well but Hasbro thought, we're going to get a live action writer Mm -hmm. who does live television stuff for shows. Mm -hmm. So they called my agent, who for some reason was their agent in all of their stuff. And they called me and they had my agent reach out to other writers whose uh, works they liked. Yeah. 
episodes they would they liked. So I was told there were maybe a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got the job because of the following: the producers Tom Griffin and Joe Bacall mm-hmm. took the meeting, and they said, "GI Joe, do you know what that is?" I says, "Yeah." You know, I said, "Yeah, I've seen the characters, shrink wrap characters. I, I get it." Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, we 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 need a pilot." I said, great. I said, but it can't be a 22-minute pilot. Right. He said, what do you mean? I said, you have so many fucking characters. There are more characters in G.I. Joe than there are people in Bangladesh. Yeah. I said, a kid <laughs> is never going to be able to remember any of them. It'll mm-hmm. just be a parade. Here they go. They're gone. Who the fuck were they? Right. I said, kids need time to make connection. Mm-hmm. And I said, one of the reasons I know this, this is true, is again, because I would always take courses in other disciplines, I was discovered by the Carnegie Tech School of Management, which was the first business school to give an MBA. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So a guy who was a psychologist working with businesses to test employees for compatibility, ability in the workplace, and all the rest, Mm -hmm. called me in by way of a professor that I loved, I took one course with him. The guy's name was Elliot Dunlop Smith. He had been the provost of Yale and mm-hmm. then was provost of Carnegie Mellon. And he called me to the attention of the psychologist who was gonna run this study. And he said, what we want is for adults to play with children with certain toys and games hmm. to see if we can understand how the child's mind emotion works so that they choose this doll over the other or this board game over the other. Hmm. Will you help us? I said, sure. He said, it'll involve three afternoons a week. I said, I have uh, drafting in those days. Mm-hmm. He said, well, we spoke to your dean and he said, he'll be happy to make room for you as long as you keep up in your submissions. Mm-hmm. So that was easy because I usually work on the submissions in class, which is what we did. So I could work on them in the drafting room at night or at home on the table. Yeah. I said, okay, great. So it started with four people in school and me. And after the first two sessions, the psychologist said, he said, we're going to stick with you because you relate to children. Yeah. We can see that. He said, and that helps. He said, the others are nice kids. He said, but, they, they can't connect with the kids. Mm. They don't see them as friendly or they don't want to be with them. They yeah. like you. So we'd like to finish this, the next six sessions, just with you. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And I played board games and played with action figures. And at the end of which, they were filming all of this. Yeah. At the end of which, they called me and they gave me a check for a thousand bucks. I was stunned. I didn't expect anything. They said, you were really, really helpful. Yeah. What we found out, and the other guy said, no, wait a minute. Tell us what we found out. I said, you found out that if kids like the one who's playing with them, they're going to love the toy. He said, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Mm. I said, and also, kids love a toy if they can identify with it. Yeah. If they think it looks like them, or there's something amusing Mm -hmm. or funny about that character that they they sort of feel reflects on them. So in mm-hmm. other words, if they can see themselves in any connection with this, they're going to like that. Yeah. But it takes a little time. He said, precisely. 
guys. That's what we learned. Mm-hmm. And that's what I learned. Yeah. So I told Joe and Tom that I knew that. And I said, therefore, I'd like to do a miniseries, five show miniseries. And he said, okay, you mm-hmm. got the job. Nice. I said, my agent will make the deal. Absolutely. And that Very was nice. it. Wow. That was the only instruction I got. That's great. That's the great. only one. And it's, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, but back in 2000, from 2001 to 2002, I took a script that, that I had been working on for several years and decided I was going to novelize it. So it became this 230 something page novel. And I was proud of it and everything. I was, I was okay <laughs> with it. Wound up being, uh, I went ahead and went the self-publishing route with it. Friends and family bought it and then it just kind of died. I got the rights back in 2011 from the printer and then I looked at it and I realized I didn't like it anymore. But I've become a better writer since then. So I, so what I did was from 2011 to 2000, actually 2019, I had been like tinkering with it over and over again. And it got to a point where I was, I was basically just throwing every single idea that I had for what, how to make the story better, how to make the story richer, how to right. enlarge everything. It got to a point where I was about three fifths of the way through the story and I was hitting the page, the page stop that I had for the 2002 novel. And so I was like, well, this is going to, this feels like it's going to be a brick. I don't want to just like subject that to my, to my readers. And then then you and GI Joe came to mind because I decided right then and there, I was going to break it up into a five-part miniseries because that's what I'd grown up watching. And I loved doing that because it set up each, each one had a beginning, middle and end. And each one had a nice like cliffhanger ending that led its way into, into, into the next one. And the reader, the viewer, that's great for them. Yeah. Because they yeah. feel like they've accomplished something quickly. Yeah. And they're and eager so, to see what happens next. And so I have it now as one big, I have it as a brick, basically. But at the same time, it's broken down into five parts that are in there. And right. it's just like if someone were to, were to get the DVDs now for, for the Mass Device or the Revenge of Cobra or the Pyramid yeah. of Darkness, whatever the case, it's all like right there for them. And they can choose if they can want to keep on reading in one night. Fabulous. I won't say no to that. But if they get to a point where they feel like they've hit a stopping point, put a bookmark in and read part two the next day. So and they and they will. Yeah. And also what helps is make the chapters short. Yeah. Every best selling book. And I read a lot of books because I was sick as hell in the last couple of months of 2020. Mm-hmm. I always read a lot. The ones that sell brief chapters yeah so the reader the attention span it's there mm-hmm. if they like they'll keep going if they stop they know what they're coming back to and they're eager to come back to it yeah and let me just tell you about the secret of writing mm-hmm. for large casts yeah the secret of writing anything mm-hmm. it begins with the dawn of time it's family mm-hmm. and it's a family that helps you, a human being, understand why we're here, what we need to do to stay here, and why we're supposed to stay here, Mm. because it's all invented. That's where myth comes from. Every mythology has a family unit, Mm -hmm. because everyone, even those who are orphans, they understand a family unit 
because we will build one. We'll create one if it isn't there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is what students do yeah. when they're new. Mm-hmm. They want to be liked. They want to have friends. And mm-hmm. it's who's going to be my friend? Yeah. And people look for the big daddy because mm-hmm. everybody recognizes that. That's Odin. Yeah. That's Jupiter. It's Zeus. That's yeah. Zeus. Yeah. Everybody gets that. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets the rotten kid brother who's going <laughs> to fuck things up. That's Loki. Yep. That's Hermes. Mm-hmm. That's everybody gets that. Yeah. So if we think in terms of a family and we put our structure, our groups together into mm-hmm. families within families, yeah. then you can handle all of these characters. Because mm-hmm. when you come upon groupings of them, like it would be, I'm trying to think of it, it would be uh, Snake Eyes mm-hmm. and Roadblock. Yeah. Going to have them together. Great. Mm-hmm. So we know, and they, we know what their mission is. Right. Because you break up the mission, you create a big mission that requires many strands of action to mm-hmm. fulfill it. And nobody gets lost. Yeah. They're watching the actions that will develop into that final central action mm-hmm. where everybody's involved. And who they are. Yep. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's what makes any movie, any book successful. Are there exceptions? Sure. Yeah. But most of those are niche markets. And I've and just by saying that, I can see that in all three of the miniseries. I can see it in G, in GI Joe the movie, and I can see it in Transformers the movie. All of the, it's all right there. And it you is, understand it. Yeah. And when, when they, I was told I had to kill, no, I had to kill Optimus Prime. I didn't want that. I just wanted to kill off some of the other characters. Why? Because then it's real. Mm-hmm. My mission was to make the Transformers noble. Just yeah. like my mission was to make the Joes noble. Yeah. And the Cobra were ignoble. Mm-hmm. They had no nobility. They had no decency. They, would, they were treacherous. They would fuck each other in a minute. Yeah. Never a Joe. Mm-hmm. Never a Transformer. Right. Always a Decepticon. Yeah. And I said, I wanted some to die. They say, okay, we'll tell you who to kill off that we want to think about new. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't want to kill off uh, Optimus Prime because you'll have to replace him. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. No, you can't replace Zeus. Right. You can't replace Jupiter. You mm-hmm. can't replace Odin. Yeah. They've got to be there. Yeah. They're the game. Mm-hmm. No. Nope. Well, they had to replace, they had to bring Optimus Prime back to life in what, uh, 60 days? About, yeah. Like it was, it, it was, <clears throat> it was interesting. So, so Wait, I'll. Let me, let me just add the following. Yeah. Because I love to teach mm-hmm. and because I've been hounded by people who aren't my students to read and by my former students to read, you got to read, you got to do. I don't have the time for that. I mm-hmm. want to use my free time to write what I want to write. Mm-hmm. But I've decided I can create a format in which I will read so many pages or this manuscript or that for so much a page, minimum page, so much for this. Mm-hmm. And for it, I will provide a tutorial, me, mm-hmm. not some nameless judge on some competition, yeah. me with mm-hmm. my credits. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to launch that business. Excellent. Because I like teaching online. Mm-hmm. And I may be doing that again, I hope, and not driving to class. Um, but it would be great if I could do that 
instead of having to drive the freeway for three hours round trip and teach mm -hmm. a three hour class. That's yeah. tough. Yeah. Yeah. Totally understandable. Yeah. Okay. And so that's I'm great to hear. And if you wanted to hit on it later, if anybody's interested, please have them contact me at uh, riffyank at AOL.com. You have that email. Yes. Riffyank at AOL.com. And so I'll, I'll definitely have that in the show notes as well. So that way, great. yeah. By okay. the way, I appreciate your interview. You're a good interviewer. Thank you. You also are willing to uh, go from here to there. If something mm -hmm. feels worth doing, you can handle that. Mm -hmm. You don't get flustered. You don't have, well, we got to do this here. We got to do that. No, that's, that's a great interview. Thank you. You're prepared and you're flexible. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you saying that. That's, I, I, could, true. I, couldn't ask, I couldn't ask for better feedback than that. So thank you. Thank you so much. And just the opportunity to be able to sit down and talk with you. It's a dream come true. Well, I, I enjoy doing it because it speaks to the longevity of this creation. Yeah. It's still with us, mm -hmm. more potent than ever. Yeah. And one of my great pleasures is seeing that the original stuff that I wrote mm -hmm. is, what, is what the fan base is going back to. Yeah. Because they see endures. it as yeah. superior. Yeah. And I think that's because of the emotional content. Mm -hmm. I was determined to put emotion into it. Yeah. And I should give you a little backstory. Mm -hmm. After the success of G.I. Joe, mm -hmm. Griffin and Bacall came to me and they said, we have this Japanese show called The Transformers. And they showed me the toys. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd like you to rewrite the first 60 episodes. Wow. Look at them. Wow. You, the script, you can look at them. We need to have them rewritten. And uh, I think you'll figure out why. Mm -hmm. So I figured out why very quickly. Mm -hmm. And one of them was that they were tremendously repetitive because mm -hmm. all of them were about energon. You've got to get the energon. If you don't have the energon and the energon and the energon and the energon. Mm -hmm. And the characters did not emerge as individuals. Yeah. They all sounded the same. So what my first deal was when I rewrote them is I've got to give them singular voices yeah. so that the good family, that's the Transformers, mm -hmm. has a singular voice and the bad family, the Decepticon, has yeah. a singular voice. Mm -hmm. So what is that voice? Well, the British accent really helps. Mm -hmm. For some reason, you're going to do something from out of space, British accent. Yeah. It just There's that sense of detachment of the other that helps. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I've got to make it a bad family. So mm -hmm. the thing is, in G.I. Joe, Destro and the Cobra Commander despised each other. Yeah, they, they worked well together, the but they- a food yeah. and a moron. Yeah. And they each sought to unseat the other. Mm -hmm. Never a Joe would do that. Right. And I gave them a kind of a Shakespearean size. So when Destro would talk about the ludicrous Cobra Temple, mm -hmm. This is nonsense. Yeah. And the camera commander in that impossible to mimic voice would say, well, <laughs> easy for you to say, Destro, you didn't let them that, and so on. <laughs> so I would make sure I set up those warring exchanges. Yeah. And that the dialogue, wherever I could do it, had Shakespearean size and some eloquence. Mm -hmm. Because I think eloquence in itself 
even if it's a kid listening, particularly if it's a kid listening. Right. I was a kid. When I heard eloquence, I might not have understood it, but I knew that's special. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's that guy's smart. Oh, yeah. okay. Didn't you? Mm-hmm. I hated things that talked down to me. Yeah. And and yeah, that's that was something that really grabbed me about those shows. Like I came in, I was about seven, eight years old when I discovered when I discovered G.I. Joe. And then like eight years old, eight years old and on when I discovered Transformers. And those to me, because I I was asked, you know, like, what was it about those shows that really kind of grabbed me? And it was because I discovered them. I wasn't shown something by like by like my father, my father got me into, yeah, my father got me into Star Wars. He got me into Star Trek. He had gotten me into all these different things. My mother, the same thing, but Transformers, G.I. Joe, those were mine. Like I found them, I discovered them and I fell in love with them. And I was really taken by the writing. The writing was a major factor of it because it didn't play, it didn't talk down and it kept things at a really good fast pace. So it was a combination of like the writing and Wally Berg, God bless him, the sort of work that he did behind the scenes, working with those those amazing voice actors and those amazing voice actors. They like were great. Everyone was just really great. Game with that. You have to be a hell of a good actor yeah. to be a successful voice actor. Yes. Because you have to paint pictures with your voice mm-hmm. and you have to paint a character that you can actually see in front of you. Yeah. When you look at the depiction, the design of that character and the voice, yeah, they marry well. Yeah. They marry well, which reminds me of Ricardo Montalban was a friend of mine because mm-hmm. I got to know him well, having written 54 Fantasy Islands. Mm-hmm. So he and Hervé Villachez, who was tattooed, the plane, the plane, yeah. they were friends. Anyway, Ricardo was in visiting in Rome on a vacation. Yeah. And he tells this story. He's on the Via Veneto. Mm-hmm. And people are looking at him and pointing and giggling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's wondering, what the hell is this? Mm-hmm. I'm a laughing stock. And then a guy who made Elton John look like an NFL quarterback <laughs> with a long scarf yeah. and big eyelashes. Mm-hmm. He swoops down the street and he says, Senor Montalban, I am so thrilled to meet you. I am your voice in Italy. Whoa. <laughs> wow. How about that? Wow. Nothing wrong with gay, but as Mr. Rourke, somehow it adds another element to Fantasy Island. Yeah. <laughs> An unexpected element. Yeah. Which today would be fine. Right. But in the 70s, not what you'd be wanting. Right. Understandable. Understandable. Okay. Anyway, so, let, let me just finish this little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By all means. I insisted on having a female character. Mm-hmm. They said, girls don't like this. I said, my daughter's a girl. She loves this. Mm-hmm. And her friends love it, too. Yeah. I want a female character. Mm-hmm. I created RC. Yeah. She's in there. Mm-hmm. And I said, also, I want a human child in there, a human kid. Mm-hmm his father yeah why so the audience has somebody that's them to connect them to all of this big stuff that's going on Mm -hmm. okay you got it yeah and that was substantially the only instruction i had 
Really? For, really. The, for, the, for the movie? You're like, yep. Wow. And I never met any of the writers. I think Buzz was, no, it wasn't Buzz Dixon. I forget who it was who just well, flip, told flip, me flip. about something I could do with my computer so I could save the characters' names because there wasn't the software then that there is now. Was it Flint Dilly? No. No? I could see his face before me. I'll, I'll think of it. Okay. And I didn't meet Flint until I was at a Transformer Com in Burbank mm. in 2019. Wow. I was thrilled to meet him. Wow. Thrilled. He did a great job. Mm -hmm. Turns out we both have a background in, in the ancient world. And in fact, when I had lunch with him and I mentioned the analysis of Xenophon, mm -hmm. he said, I know what that is. <laughs> I mean, what the Anabasis and Xenophon is? It's, I wish I could say yes. I would love to be, okay, to be a part you, of that group, but. Yeah. I'm going to tell you because it'll show you the, the durability of a good, of a good story. Yeah. <clears throat> the Anabasis says a difficult journey. Mm. The dimensions of the journey are not necessarily specific, but Xenophon was a Greek, wealthy mm. Greek. Yeah. The only Greeks that had real lives and weren't slaves were wealthy. Mm -hmm. Slaves made them wealthy, and so did their various business enterprises when they were there because they were great seafarers and great traders. So what the young Athenian gentlemen did, mm -hmm. they rented themselves out as mercenaries. Mm -hmm. It was a chance to use all of the war skills that they trained for yeah. for real get paid for it, get out of town, get laid, steal mm -hmm. stuff they could bring back. It was like a vacation with pay. Yeah. So a group of these Athenian gentlemen signed on as mercenaries for a pretender to the throne of Persia. Mm. I forget which Cyrus or which Xerxes it was, but it was one of them. Yeah. And they are in Central Asia getting ready to do battle. Mm -hmm. They are with the mercenaries, supporting the pretender along with his slaves, and the other armies belong to the emperor Xerxes or Cyrus. Yeah. First day of battle, the pretender to the throne is killed with an arrow through the eye. Oof. For the Bayou Tapestry, this is what happened in the uh, conquest of England. Mm. So what happened in those days, the uh, kind of way of the world involving mercenaries was mm -hmm. your boss is dead, get your weapons and get the fuck out. Yeah. And we won't bother you, just get out. Mm -hmm. So what happened when the mercenaries are told you're fired mm -hmm. is that the Persian general invited the officers of the Greek detachment to a farewell dinner. Mm. And they murdered them there. Wow. Their thinking was this. Armies are slave armies. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. Yeah. Nobody's going to do anything for the love of us. Mm -hmm. You've got to use the whip. You've got to use torture. Gonna, that's what you ought to do. Right. The Greeks, they're slaves. Their leaders are gone. Mm. We'll go in and grab them up and use them for our army. 
Mm. They didn't understand was that every Greek was his own general. Yeah. Famously so. They voted. They picked Xenophon. Lead us the fuck out of here. <laughs> and he did. Wow. And didn't lose a man. Mm. And the whole route was filled with Persians who wanted to kill them. And their followers wanted to kill them for the reward. Yeah. And he got them all back to Athens. Mm. How about that? Wow. There's a movie called The Wanderers, which is about a street gang in New York. Mm. They have a big conference uptown. The, the Warriors. The Lord, that's Warriors. It. Yeah. Warriors. Yeah. Up the big conference uptown. All the leaders are killed. And mm -hmm. now all of these guys on roller skates have mm -hmm. to get back downtown and stay alive. Yeah. Same fucking story. Mm -hmm. Wow. Anyway, Flint knew that. Yeah. I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. And he also knew who Alcibiades was and all the rest. It was thrilling. That's great. Because I've had a lot of education and I've always read. I so seldom get a chance to discuss parts of it that are arcane with anybody. Yeah. So it was a thrill. I think Flint is a very talented guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that makes, a, that, makes, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense considering just how, like, I, I mean, I, I didn't read the, I, didn't, I haven't read the initial drafts of the movie, but I do, but it's all sounds like based on like what I've, the experiences I've had talking with him and also reading the Games Master and then talking with you, it sounds like the two of you would mesh so well. We did. So it, it really couldn't be a better pairing of one person working with another script and, and adding to oh, it. I, listen, there wasn't much done to my script. Yeah. Because it was a Writer's Guild script. Mm -hmm. That means if anybody's going to take credit, yeah. they have to show enough work of their own to assume credit. Nobody mm -hmm. did that. So it was like 99% my script. Whoever put shit in, I didn't need that. I thought this is a disservice to mm. those kids. Older people are going to watch it. They don't need to hear shit. They can mm. talk shit all they want. Right. So I didn't like that. And in watching the premiere, the soundtrack was so loud, you couldn't hear the dialogue. Mm. And I got on Tom and Joe about that, and they weren't pleased. Mm. I said, if you can't hear the dialogue, you might love the characters, but you don't know what the fuck they're saying. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Minor bitch, because that was cleaned up. They yeah. redid the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I was, like I said, I was, I was 10 years old when the movie was coming out. It was actually just a couple of days after my birthday when it, when it, when it did come out. And I remember going over to my dad and saying like, can we go see it? And he said, well, I just got a call from your uncle. And he said, don't take <laughs> to go see it because I'm going to take him. And I was like, oh, OK. All right. And so I knew that that was on the horizon. And thankfully, it was August. And so I didn't have to worry about kids in the schoolyard, like spoiling right. anything. So and thankfully, I only had to wait two weeks because we went over to my went over to my aunt and uncle's place that on uh, that Saturday, I think it was the 23rd, I think, and or the 24th, maybe. And it was anyway, it was around that time. So we we were based, I was talking with my aunt at the time and about all the different movies that had come out 
1986, which was a lot. There was like one after the other. That summer of, of 86 was just insane. And then I said that the main one I've been waiting to see is Transformers the movie. And my uncle walks into the room, into the room and just goes, you ready to go? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. And thankfully he asked me at one point on, on the way in, just said, uh, so what, it, so what's the whole thing with this? Like, what's, the, what's the break? Give me a breakdown. What are, what is it that we're going to see? And I spelled out the basic elements of the Autobots, the Decepticon, Cybertron coming to earth 4 million years later, they get revived. They, you know, become robots in disguise based on the, everything that's, that's around the planet that's already there. And then, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm so glad I did that because right at the very beginning, I hear it is the year 2005. I was like, oh, okay. So we're taking a jump then. And that's when things really kicked in because it wasn't long after that. That's when that, that attack on the shuttle happens. And all of a sudden there goes Braun, there goes Prowl, there goes Ratchet, there goes Ironhide. And so, so when, so did Hasbro basically say these are the ones we're discontinuing? These are the ones that we're continuing with? That, that we're discontinuing. Discontinued, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those were Hasbro's choices. Yeah. And so were they basically just saying just write them out of the write them out of the script or kill them? Like what was it that what was the approach get, that they wanted to take? Dead. That was they, it. Want, they wanted them dead. dead. Wow. Wow. But then the big death was of course Optimus. Optimus Prime. Oh yeah. I understand the uh, the need for the size of that. Yeah. I also understood well that you cannot really replace him. Mm-hmm. And I thought Rodimus Prime was interesting and it was sort of a teen character mm-hmm. that was a, with a cool transformation and, and so on. But I did the best I could, but I knew that that could never become Optimus Prime yeah. unless you came back to him in 20 years. Mm-hmm. I. I actually wound up really like, like appreciating Rodimus Prime because because of that very thing. He yep. was someone who was living in the shadow of someone who was and a legend. Overmatched. Yeah. And had to had to constantly deal with that. I even said that a few years ago, I was at a convention. It was over here in St. Louis. And it was a wonderful convention. A lot of great people that were there, but it was horribly marketed. So barely anyone showed up for it. But it allowed us the opportunity to go ahead and mingle with people. One of them being Greg Berger, the voice of Grimlock. Oh, yeah. Lovely guy. Absolutely. I know a lot of those voice actors. In fact, I hired a lot of them for the Marvel action on it. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And and Greg has actually agreed to be part of this miniseries. So it's going to be- yeah, uh, so it's going to be great to hear his stories as well. And that prompted one of my friends, because we, my friends and I, we had our books. So we had our booth and everything, and we were selling them as well. I basically used them as loss leaders, my own. I was gifting copies of Excelsior to, to Greg, and I gifted a copy to Alan Oppenheimer, the voice of Skeletor. One of my and, oldest and best friends. Oh, really? I've known him since 1949. Wow. Wow. And the fraternity brothers, and he's just great. Oh, he's he's, uh, just a really, really great guy. Because I knew I had to give him a copy of this book because the main adversary is someone who was inspired by the Frank Langella take of Skeletor from the 87 movie. And I knew that that movie wouldn't have gone anywhere if Alan Oppenheimer had not made Skeletor the iconic character that he was. Exactly right. 
So I was like, I have to give gift him a copy of this. So I gift him, I, I hand it to him over at his booth. This is an example of what, what kind of a Prince Allen is. He gets out of his chair. He sits, he asks me to sit over at his booth while I sign my copy for him. And he stands over my shoulder, like looking down as I'm doing it. And the entire time, all I'm thinking is where the fuck is a camera? <laughs> and uh, he's, he's a wonderful person. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And so I was asked by one of my friends what, what I would have done differently for season three. And the only thing I would have done, and this is playing exactly into what you said about Optimus Prime, how he's so irreplaceable. I said that what they should have done was the episode Dark Awakening, where he's revived as a zombie by the Quintessons, what they should do is he should override his programming, but not kill himself at the end. He should stay on Cybertron. I absolutely agree. Yeah, he should, sure. stay, on, he should stay on Cybertron and be Rodimus's mentor. So yes. that way Rodimus can still go out on his missions, all, you know, but Optimus is so badly damaged that he needs to stay on Cybertron. He needs to stay connected to a life support system. That is absolutely brilliant. And that is absolutely smart and correct in terms of utilizing characters with a history mm -hmm. with new characters so that you can draw from each one of them. Yeah. And by leaving one behind, there's always the time when the one behind catches up with the one away yep. or vice versa, which creates nothing's more exciting than the right kind of entrance or exit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because it can change the direction of a story. Right. As long as the characters... Yep. what they're about, you'll go with them. Yeah. And this was around the same time that G.I. Joe introduced General Hawk, who was basically doing the same thing. He was leading G.I. Joe from behind a desk. So Duke and Flint were, out, were the ones out doing the missions. So you had that authority figure hanging back. It would be the same sort of yes. setup for Optimus. Mm -hmm. And you can always draw on what hasn't been presented yet. Yeah. I didn't know Optimus Prime had a brother, mm -hmm. Septimus Prime. I had no idea. But if I would bring in that brother, mm -hmm. you mean Transformers can't have brothers and sisters? Really? Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. How yeah. do they do that? Through their science. Mm -hmm. That's good enough for me. I accept that. Yeah. Why does yeah. a werewolf turn into a werewolf? Because the full moon is there, idiot. Right. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, when you're a writer, you're God. Mm -hmm. You don't yeah. like where you are. Don't be there. Right. Don't right. go there on page twenty-eight. Mm -hmm. Stay away. Go someplace else. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, that sort of it, that sort of feeling of of Optimus being the icon that he was. Yeah, I was definitely sad to see him go, but I was also looking forward to what the future would hold with all these I new characters. How they play that. Well, yeah. what it means is you keep Optimus Prime in the mix. Yeah. And there's always this hope. Mm -hmm. When can he come back? Yeah. You really need him now. Which is. Can count on him. Which is what, which is another thing. When you don't expect it to say, I see what's happening. You've not, you're going in the wrong direction. You've got to prepare for this. Yeah. And that's, it's funny you should say that because it was in 87, I believe. That's when Hasbro brought in the Power Master line. And the, that was therein to kind of bring back Optimus Prime as in toy form by making yeah. him a power master. So what I was thinking was, well, like if, if Optimus is staying on Cybertron, 
and he's like he's coaching Rodimus. He's got his ear and everything. He's able That's to mentor, be his mentor. Yeah. Mentor mentee relationship is really powerful. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden you have this instance that is that is creating this galactic issue that will that will unravel everything that we've all known and loved. And the only one who can do something is Optimus. Yes. And so they reconfigure his life support system and make it into something portable that can fit inside him. A human can power it. Boom, you got yourself Power Master Optimus Prime and you go forward from there. Well, you're, you're very much in sync with my thought was that transformation doesn't stop with death. Yeah. That's what I did with Megatron. Mm -hmm. Oh, the which, which was wonderful. The transformation again, that's perfectly in keeping yeah. with the whole idea of the Transformers. Yeah, it's and evolution. Fact, yeah. What I've been asked often, and I gave my thoughts on this at two Comic Cons and got standing ovations, mm -hmm. which shocked me. And I said, one of the things that appeals and appealed to me from the first with this, with Transformers is, we are transformers, all of us. Yeah. When we're small children, we see injustice. Mm -hmm. We know that's wrong. Yeah. We can't fix it. This makes us angry because we want to make it better. Yeah. But we can't. We have to transform into an adult mm -hmm. or somebody with the power to make it right. That's why we idolize Superman, Batman, Transformers, the Autobots and so on, mm -hmm. they can make it right. Yeah. But we continue to transform. And we transform with that sense of justice. Mm -hmm. We are fans of the Transformers because we are lifelong fans of the downtrodden being lifted up. Yeah. Because we were downtrodden. Mm -hmm. Every child is. Yeah. Every kid, you have adults, they determine your life. Mm -hmm. Are they always fair? Hell no. Yeah. Do they always make sense? No. Do mm -hmm. they create impossible exchanges? You have to love me. Why? Because I'm your mom. But you're a drunk and you're never home and you don't cook. Wow. I'm your mother and you're supposed to love me. So anyway, that's the staying power of Transformers. Mm -hmm. And I really believe the fact that I put the nobility into it. Yeah. The nobility of the Decepticon, of the Autobots. The yeah. nobility of Optimus Prime passing the Matrix. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. in the script, I call for Optimus Prime's color to vanish when he dies. Mm. To me, that was a hell of a moment on the screen. Oh, it was amazing. It's led to this that I found out for every, every year, I hear something like this based on having written The Transformers, the movie. Mm -hmm. And at the Comic Con, Three generations would come to my table. Three. Yeah. Sometimes they were women, mm -hmm. daughters and granddaughters. And the oldest one would always say something like this, or the next one. I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Mommy and daddy took me to see the Transformers, and you killed Optimus Prime. <laughs> Could you please sign my underwear? <laughs> Seriously. And I did. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. 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 It's it's no secret, like amongst anyone who knows me, the Optimus Prime means the world to me because he is someone who inspired me from childhood on. He got he 
it was that kind of a figure that aspired me to want to make a character that would reach those kinds of heights. And so that's exactly when, what I hoped for. Exactly. And in and in uh, 1992, when I created my character Excelsior, who would who is now he's next year he's celebrating 30 years in existence. And that's incredible. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know that character. You have to send me some stuff. I will absolutely. I will. Me. I will happily gift you a copy of of the of the first two books. Like I, I really think you would enjoy Wonderful. them. Yeah. And and can I, them? can I buy them online? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I can. I can send you the link once. Yeah. Once send, we're all finished here, money, I will. Gla- I will happily do that. And uh, yeah, it was. I created this character with three characters in mind. I because. He was originally inspired by watching the 1981 John Borman film Excalibur, uh, which was still stands as one of my favorite films. Magical. Yeah. And so it was King Arthur, it was Jesus Christ, and it was Optimus Prime. Those three, those three icons went into become into eventually getting into this mix that would become Excelsior. And he's gone through a lot of changes over the years, but he's someone that I'm really, really proud of. And I can't wait to look. Yes. Yeah. So send me the link, please. Absolutely. Absolutely. And forgive me for not checking up on you. I was just uh, delighted that you were interested and wanted to talk Transformers. Yeah. So I yeah. didn't do my uh, due diligence. I oh, that's that's fine. That's perfectly fine. It's yeah. This this it's it's no secret that this movie, these characters, that script, they mean a lot. And it's no, it's, it's no secret why I have the 27 by 40 poster of the movie up as the centerpiece of my office here. I um, had it, but somebody stole it. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, that's when I, I was so thrilled to, to have that and got, got myself a frame, frame for it. And it's that and the June 23rd teaser poster for Batman 1989. Those were my two big gets. And right. I got I got the framed one here in my office for Transformers the movie. I got the framed one for Batman at my office at work. And it's that that to me is just like it's that's 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 a good like one two punch right would there. Would you like a picture of me and Stanley? Yes, I would love okay. one. I send actually me your, send me your address. Yeah. And I'll sign it and send it to you. That would be wonderful. That'd be wonderful. I actually also said I got to meet Stanley in 2008 when he was signing. He was he he had redone his uh, "You Don't Say" books, and he was doing them for the 2008 election. And he was at Borders in New York City. That's as far how far back it's going. And it's he he was there for Comic Con, but he was going to be there signing copies of the book. So I'm there. I'm getting his. I'm waiting to see say like what what exactly am i going to say to him and i go up to him and i say like stan i just want to say thank you so much for not only creating all these great characters but for inspiring me to create my own and in stanley fashion he just goes oh great more competition and (laughs) and then i say to him i said you know like one specific character was directly inspired by you and then i lean forward and i said his name is excelsior and his eyes lit up and just, oh, that's great. And shook my hand and wished me luck on it. I'm never going to get a blessing from the Pope. That was close enough. So Stan was wonderful. Yes. Yeah. A real friend. <clears throat> and with Stan, I wrote a live feature version of The Fantastic Four, oh. Luke Cage, Iron Man, 
and Thor. Wow. But this was before Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire mm -hmm. hit. Yeah. It was an enormous success. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is minor producers would yep. pay me to write it. Stan and I would share story credit. Mm -hmm. I'd write the script. Mm. Then we'd have a meeting at a studio. Yeah. And the meeting always was this. This is a great script. But Stan, it'll make a terrific cartoon. That's the business you're in. We mm. make motion pictures. That's a whole different thing, Stan. You, you write, let's face it, kitty shit. That's mm. what they say to him. Until Tobey Maguire's yep. Spider-Man hit. Mm -hmm. Then all of those scripts I'd written for these semi-capable producers, yeah. they became fodder that were used by subsequent writers mm -hmm. and wrote versions of what I had written. Wow. And not as well by any means. Yeah. Yeah. Although I thought yeah. Iron Man was great. Iron Man was great. That was yeah. that was the start of a really interesting period. You bet. Yeah. That's I mean, we're that just basically like the geek shall inherit the earth. And that's basically what where we are right now. Like that's it's it's yeah. it's a time where everything that that, uh, that we were looked at looked down upon for reading and loving, now all of a sudden everyone is buying a ticket to go see. And well, the graphic novel. Yeah. Because I had a graphic novel with Bill Melendez, who was the great animator, mm, who animated yeah. Charlie Brown, and mm -hmm. what the hell was the name? The cat, Garfield. Garfield, that's One right. Yeah. 15 Rubens, I mean, and Emmys. Great. We were really good friends. Yeah. And I created a graphic novel, and he did the characters. Mm -hmm. And the graphic novel was called Las Vegas Confidential. Mm. And it was two warring hotels. Mm -hmm. One of them had a sort of family theme, Western motif. Yeah. The other one was ultra modern. And it was really owned by space aliens with android hookers. Nice. <laughs> really wild. Yeah. Anyway, it was taken to Mifed in Milan. Uh -huh. 19 countries wanted to do that immediately. Wow. Nearly all of Europe. I mean, countries that were part of the Soviet empire. I mean, they all wanted to do that. Yeah. But they all wanted it to have an American venue first. Mm. No American studio, no American, they wouldn't do it. Yeah. Because they didn't believe in the graphic novel, the telenovela, mm -hmm. which yeah. is literature in every European country, certainly in Japan, all over the Orient. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't do it. Wow. Wow. So... So I have to ask like one, one like uh, big question, and this is some, uh, a good way to kind of wrap up our talk. Is I'm just taking a look at the... now. I've been with you for 42 days. Yeah. <laughs> and the lunches have not been good. <laughs> <laughs> but what would you say like overall would be the legacy of Transformers, the movie 35 years? What would you say? Like, what is it about it that has made it endure for so long? Well, I think, that what it has made it such a, an evergreen is because of this idea of transforming being very much part of the human condition. Yeah. We transform. Mm -hmm. We change. The seven ages of man of Shakespeare, he didn't put enough ages in there. Yeah. Because there now seems to be an infinite number of ages whereby the human being is different. Capacities change. 
Mm-hmm. You're called upon to understand things that would be otherwise impenetrable. Yeah. And yet you have to embrace them and absorb them to be one with the time you're living in. Mm-hmm. So it's a continued churn of transformation, which everyone relates to subliminally. Yeah. They may not consciously say, Jesus, I have to really change myself. I got to deal with cell phones now. I got to be able to, to deal with the, the PDF. I got to be able to do this and that. Mm-hmm. And I want to be in. I got to be able to tweet. I got to be able to read a tweet. I think it's bullshit, but I got to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And driving an electric car. What about that? How far is it going to go? Well, I've got to do it because the planet's falling apart. We are constantly called upon to transform. Yeah. So this basic story, which is predicated on the ability of interesting characters who are noble and horrible yeah. to transform and do mankind, the world, robot kind, great benefits, and the others who are there to destroy. It's the yin and the yang constantly. Yeah. The light and the dark, which is something Walt Disney figured out immediately, mm-hmm. which is why Snow White's a classic, yeah. which is like why Old Yeller's a classic, mm-hmm. which is why, why nearly every one of his major films is a classic. Mm-hmm. He recognized there is no light without dark. Yeah. There is no sense of story or conflict if you don't recognize all the way, yeah. which is life or death, mm-hmm. no white, she's in a living death. Mm-hmm. Which wants her death, yeah. living, please. But otherwise, Snow White is what? What's at its core? It doesn't respond to life. Kids recognize life. Mm-hmm. It's you're alive or you're not. Yeah. Where's grandma? Grandma's gone, she's with the angels. Yeah, but where is she? She's not here, mm-hmm. she's gone. Grandma's gone. Am I going to be gone too? Yes, but not for a long time, we hope. Right. What do you mean we hope? I'd like a guarantee. There aren't any. Yeah. So the Transformers parallels and at the same time creates a pathway for any audience's connection to tomorrow. Wow. These characters. And that's why it was important for me to transform Megatron after death. Yeah. When does it end? Mm -hmm. Does it end? How many religions are predicated on death being but one stage in the human experience? Yeah. Are we not going to become avatars? Are we not going to go through the wheel of life until we've escaped our initial landing place? So it always speaks to this sense of being in flux Mm. in a fascinating, exciting way. Because there's always conflict, drama, things happen or they don't. There are reasons we root for the good guys. We curse the bad guys, but we want to enjoy them as we curse them Mm -hmm. because it's better that way. Yeah. That's always green. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if I've been able to contribute anything to that, I'm pleased, but I take my greatest satisfaction in knowing this. The world needs stories. Mm -hmm. What would life be like if we didn't have a story to escape into? Mm -hmm. What would it be life like if there were no music, no symphonies? What would it be like without poetry, 
what would it be like? It would be unbearable. Because yeah. as you're watching this fictional life, this mm -hmm. universe unfold before you, where you can root for the good guys and be worried about what's going to happen to the bad guys, and always with hope in your heart, hope mm -hmm. the good guys win, yeah. that justice and kindness trumps evil, we would be lost. Mm -hmm. So if I contributed, and I did, more than 700 produced hours of top 10 primetime television in all genres, mm -hmm. I made a lot of people happy. Yes. I gave them escape and release and hopefully made them laugh when that was appropriate or made them sit forward and cheer and say, wow. And I'm glad I could do that. That feels good. And as far as being expecting to be remembered beyond my lifetime, well, I'll be happy to have done the best job I could do here and now and hope to God some of the things that I did inspired people like you mm -hmm. who inspired others to always reach higher for the good, for the light. That's what I hope is my legacy. And that is what you have absolutely done here. That's what you've done over the years. I am still, I am absolutely, this is, this really is one of those times where the dream come true actually surpasses the dream. And well, it's, that, that's, that's how I feel about what I did. Yeah. And I use this analogy. I love baseball. Yeah. I had a tryout with the Pirates when I was 16, which was interesting and a disaster, but interesting. But I never got into the major leagues. Mm -hmm. In writing, for television, for film, and so on, I was in the majors for a yeah. long time. Yeah. I was on some all-star teams more than once. Mm -hmm. I never made it to the Hall of Fame, but hey, it was a a worthwhile career and, and I hope yeah. it continues to be yes as as do i as do i sir as i said you're a great interviewer thank you so much and i hope it helps your brand yeah reach new heights mm -hmm. it has been just an absolute pleasure to to speak with you to learn from you and i hope that all of you who are listening have felt just at least a fraction of that. I hope that you are just as inspired as I am. I am so confident that this season, season four of Excelsior Journeys will continue to inspire, to motivate, to get you up and going toward your passion because you never know what is going to wind up waiting for you when that happens. And I just hope they buy my book yep. <laughs> and my album as, and yeah. my jams and jellies. There you go. And so for Mr. Ron Friedman, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, 
comment or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com.